Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 20. And Happy New Year! In case no one has wished you a Happy New Year yet, probably I'm a little late to the party there, but hopefully it will be a Happy New Year for me, you, and everybody else. Now, this is going to be an unusual episode. Well, this is a very, very usual one. Basically, what I'm going to do right now to make up for the fact that for the last several months I have not done the somewhat normal upcoming games of interest segment because we were getting on to the end of the year and there weren't that many new games that were popping up on the radar at the end of the year. Now, I am going to do a massive upcoming games of interest because I have finished my 2017 games of interest geek list. And as of right now, there are, what is it, 74 unique titles, games and expansions that I am personally looking forward to in the year 2017. That's a lot. Although, I'm going to break this down into a few sections. And in fact, it's not even all going to be covered on this podcast because this is a companion piece to my top 25 of 2017 that you may have already seen. I'm actually putting the top 25 video up first, and then this podcast will go up shortly thereafter, depending on when I can get Jen in front of a mic so we can do some Q&A. We'll see how that goes. But anyway... We are going to get going. This is going to be a list of basically the next 25. Uh, You know, the other 25 games that I'm really excited about, plus another 20 or so expansions. Because I think this is going to be about a 50-title list here, right? Yeah. So, let's get going on it right after this. Okay, folks, right. So, if you want to follow along, in case you're not driving or walking your dogs right now while listening to this, you can find my geek list on Board Game Geek. Basically, just go to guild.rado.com, and there's a list of a bunch of common links. One of them is 2017 Games of Interest, so you can find it there really easy. I've already gone on ahead to the third page, and I'm going to start with item number 58 on the list. Actually, 58 and 57 are kind of oddballs, because I don't know if they're coming out in 2017 or not. There has been no information. They currently have no listed date in the BGG database. But there's a chance they might come out, and if they do, I'm telling you, both of these would probably push into my top 10 most anticipated games of the year. Surely top 15. But as it is, since there's nobody knows for sure when they're coming, I'm, I've got them <clears throat> in their own separate little category. So, what are they? They are On Mars and Alter Ego. So let's talk about them. On Mars, man, for the last year or Two, we have been, it seems, deluged with a series of Martian-themed games. And, you know, I mean, 
this kind of thing happens in pop culture all the time. There's some big inciting incident that you know really hits the popular zeitgeist, and a whole bunch of creative people in whatever industry you're thinking about all start mulling that idea around in their head, and then what do you know? A year later, or you know, two years later, a bunch of games all come out because they came from the same source. And so we're going through this Martian phase right now, and obviously Mars is in the zeitgeist. What with you know, uh, you know, Elon Musk, but more importantly, the movie The Martian and the book before it was hugely popular too. So I don't think it's a coincidence that all these Mars games are coming out right now. But anyway, on Mars, why do I mention it? Well. Of all of the Martian-themed games that are going to be that have come out in the last year and are going to be coming out over the next year or so, this is by far, I think, the one with the most potential to be a real hit with me and Jen because it is from designer Vita Lasarda. And longtime fans of the show know Jen and I really enjoy his games. I mean, he's known for really incredibly heavy, crunchy games that are driven by really silky smooth, elegant mechanisms. And I'm going to expect the same thing from him working on a Martian colonization game. Sign me up. Beam me up, Scotty. I want to be on Mars if Vital is designing it. Uh, But again, I don't know if this is going to be coming out in 2017. I'm kind of guessing not, because he already has a few other potential products that are coming out, so I wouldn't be surprised if this gets pushed back to 2018, but fingers crossed, we'll find out. Maybe I'll find out more uh, this month when I go to Portugal for LieraCon. I'm sure I'll run into him, and I'll be sure to ask him. Maybe I'll even get to play Prototype. I don't know. Anyway, the other game that I have no idea if it's coming out in 2017 is called Alter Ego. Now, this is very, very cool. I, um, when, I, when I first heard about the theme here, which is, you know, superheroes. You know, okay, superheroes, there's actually a decent assortment of superhero-themed board games out there now that are actually pretty good. So what does Alter Ego bring to the table? It's the fact that the game while having you focus on being you know, a vigilante hero running around at night, ridding the streets of crime and keeping the people safe, yeah, sure, that's all fine, but the game gives an equal amount of focus to your day job, to your alter ego, to your family life, your professional life, and in this game, you have to balance those two halves of your existence. I think that is awesome. That is such an incredibly cool element. You know, I mean, because you know, the alter ego, you know, you're uh, is such a big, big part of the superhero mythos. But board games haven't really dealt with that. They only have you running around in costume. I love the fact that in this game, you're going to have to spend as much time trying to, I don't know, pick up the groceries, walk the dog. I have no idea. I just know this is a very, very cool idea. And it's from designer Seth Jaffe. And Jen and I love Eminent Domain. And so I'm I'm super-duper stoked. Again, there's no information about whether this is going to be out in 2017. I'm willing to bet probably not. But fingers crossed, because I I cannot wait to learn more about Alter Ego. Now, let's get on to games that have been announced as 2017 titles. And this is a countdown of sorts, starting with number 56 on the list. And I'm going to end this at number 26, because, of course, I'm going to do in 25 to 1 in the associated top 10 or top 25 video, which, by the way, there's a link for it. And there's a link for the geek list on the show notes of this podcast. Um, So you're going to have to, I'm going to start here in the podcast. I'm going to end in video, although I wouldn't be surprised if you've heard this the other way around, but stop jibber jabbing. Let's go. 
Number 56 of games of interest for me at this point in 2017 is Minds of Olnak. And now this is actually one that I believe I mentioned in a Games of Interest last year. Because originally this was supposed to be a 2016 release. But as is often the case, it got pushed. Things ended up taking longer than the uh, publisher had originally planned. That's fine. I said it before when I brought this up. I'll say it again right now. I still know almost nothing about this game. Which is why it's where I'm starting my list. I've just... You know, there's very little information. I'm surprised that the publisher... I mean, they were close to publishing it. I saw they had really, really high-quality prototypes of this at Essen Spiel. So a bunch of people played it, and yet the publisher can't be bothered to actually give any kind of detailed description. There's no pictures. There's nothing. Um, ah, it drives me nuts. So why is it even on my list? I've said, I'll be honest. It's the art. I'm looking at the box cover right now on the geek list. Man, that just looks so gorgeous. I, I don't know. I heard, I read one person who played it, actually reported, it's kind of like a lighter Terra Mystica. That's something that's interesting. Who knows? All I know is I'm interested because of the art. That's number 56, Minds of Olnak. Now, on to number 55, Yamatai, is I believe how you're going to pronounce it. And this is going to be Days of Wonders' big title of the year. They put out one game every year and really pimp it out and make sure the, the art is amazing, the components are amazing, the design is rock solid and well considered because they just focus on one game at a time. And this is going to be the big one. It's um, set in ancient Japan. Apparently there's tile drafting and area control. Again, almost nothing known about this game. Which is one of the reasons it's so low on my list. Because I just can't judge much about it. I mean, I don't even know what the real art looks like. I'm just looking at a picture of a prototype of the board right now. Um, the other reason it's not quite as high is... Although, this would be a reason that for a lot of people it would be crazy high on their list. Is it is a design team-up from first-time designer Mark Paquin and Bruno Cathala. So, Bruno Cathala is two magic words for a lot of people who absolutely love his designs. I respect his designs, but more often than not, I find they've got a little bit too much cutthroatedness kind of woven in for Jensen, my taste. So I worry that Yamatai might be the same. I don't know, though. I've mostly got it on the list because, you know, you know, a Days of Wonder game is always worth checking out uh, because there's so much love and care and craftsmanship that goes into it. So that's why number 55 is Yamatai. Alrighty, now on to number 54. I think I have had this game on my games of interest for at least three years in a row now. Maybe even four. It's taken forever for this game to see the light of day. So long has it taken. It used to uh, have a completely different name. It used to be called The Last... Bastion. It has now been renamed and repurposed because it's been picked up by its third publisher, apparently. And the name of the game is Reborn from Flame. And I'll tell you why I keep putting this on anticipation list after anticipation list. I'm just in love with this theme. This is a must-defend-the-village simulation, but players are not brave heroes. We're not the equivalent of the seven samurai who have all come together to save the poor villagers from you know, annihilation by the ravaging hordes. We're the villagers. We, no one's coming to save us. We have to rise up and save ourselves. And we don't have a big cache of weapons. We don't have tons of cool magic spells. We've got farming equipment. And yet we have to 
put forward a defense of our city. And I love that. That is such a cool underdog uh, type situation. Now, a big part of the game is actually, you know, talking to the village elders and, you know, getting training while trying to, you know, set up defenses and all that. I don't know how the game plays, but ever since I first heard about it, I've been super duper stoked from that theme alone. Um, and so that's why number 54 is Reborn from Flame. Actually, I think I kind of like The Last Bastion better. Not quite sure I like this new title. But either way, I'm still excited about it. Now, number 53, we have Exodus Fleet. And uh, this is another one from Tasty Minstrel Games. Did I mention Alter Egos from Tasty Minstrel? This is also from Tasty Minstrel. And that's one of the reasons it's on my list, because Tasty Minstrel has really good taste. Uh, you know, They have not put out a bad game. They haven't always put out games that Jen and I have enjoyed, but they put out rock-solid, smart designs. And so I fully expect Exodus Fleet to be a smart, well-considered design as well. It's a science fiction game where uh, the Earth is dying for whatever reason, I'm not really quite sure. And so humanity is doing a mass exodus, and we as players are trying to manage this exodus fleet. Get the most people onto our ship and launch before Doomsday happens. So that's a cool title. You know, kind of Noah's Ark in space, trying, you know, the last seeds of humanity and all that. So that, plus the fact it's from Tasty Minstrel, means I'm interested. I just don't know enough to put it higher on the list. So right now, it's going to stay at number 53, Exodus Fleet. The Exodus Fleet. Now, 52. We have we have a couple of rampaging beagles over there. Daisy! Gertrude! It's adorable that you want to play, but I'm doing a podcast right now. Thanks, Daisy. Good girl. Okay. Sorry, folks. I don't even know if you could hear that. I mean, they're a little ways away, but it was kind of distracting, the adorableness. All right. And now they're crawling all over me. Why do I do this on a couch? This is not a good idea. Ah. Okay. Okay. No, 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 no. Don't play. Ah. All right. There we go. Folks, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting overrun. All right. Ah, excuse me. <laughs> all righty. Number 52. Where was I? Oh, and now they're excited again. All right, maybe I should just leave them be. Uh, um, okay, number 52, Elements and Idols. This is a deck builder. And I know, a deck builder. People are sick and tired of deck builders. Don't want to hear about deck builders anymore. Sorry, I like deck builders. I love deck builders. I mean, deck building is such a cool, wonderful uh, gameplay mechanism. As long as developers come up with new things to do with it, I'll still be there building my decks. And what's new about this one? Well... The there's actually been a few deck builders now that really run with this idea of you spend just as much time building up your deck as you do tearing it apart. Because you put stuff in to make your deck stronger, but then you have to pull stuff back out to score. I, I've seen it in oh Cuisine a la carte and oh um, Dale of Merchants and what's the Egyptian one? Valley of the Kings. It works really well. Element and Idols is another one of these where we are the leaders of I think, I think, from looking at the art, we're like Polynesian tribes or something like that. And it's our job to make sure our people are happy. So this is going to be another one where we're building our deck up, but then we're ripping it apart to make people happy and score points. So that's cool. But what's interesting about this is, 
unlike all the other ones I just mentioned, where the act of pulling your deck apart is driven by specific targets. Everybody can see, look, I, I need to do, I need to pull these particular cards out at this particular time, uh, you know, to score points. In Elements and Idols, the demands of your people are very unpredictable because they're driven by dice. So, as you're building up, you never know exactly what it is you're going to need. Now, that's all I know. But, like I said right up front, if a deck builder does something new and interesting, I'll be there. This sounds new and interesting and different to me. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but it could be cool. And that's why it's number 52, Elements and Idols. Then we move on to number 51, COG. Um, which is an acronym, and I forget what it's for. Council of Gears or something like that? Ah, I, I should know because I actually did a run-through for this. I had the prototype of this when it was on Kickstarter. And um, so you can check out my video to see more. Jen, I very much enjoyed this. It's from Dr. Steve Finn um, you know, of, of Steve Finn Games. And it's another really rock salt. Now, interesting, I was about to say filler, but it's not. You know, Steve Finn is really no serious fillers. This is a bigger full-length game. Um, you know, this is him kind of branching out and, you know, stretching his wings. And I doff my cap and salute him for, you know, not just staying in his comfort zone, but trying to do something more, bigger, and better. And that's definitely what COG is. Although, what really is interesting about the game, which Jen I very much enjoyed, is that it's a very cool original idea. It basically takes uh, the concepts... It, it's basically, for lack of a better term, Scrabble the worker placement game. Um, with this neat steampunk theme. Because we're trying to build contraptions to um, score points and uh, you know and fulfill obligations as members of the council of whatever we are to try and and um, you know clean up pollution in the city if i recall correctly the city of london in the steampunk world i think that's what it was but we build these contraptions by spelling out words like gear and cog and steam and whatnot and we do that by placing word tiles. And it looks very much like, like Scrabble or like we're building a crossword puzzle as we go. But we get the letter tiles that we're going to be using and a bunch of other stuff via worker placement. It's really cool. It works really nicely. And Jen and I very much enjoyed it. Uh, when it was on Kickstarter, we did the... Uh, the, the prototype run-through. So I'm looking forward to the final version. Um, and really... You know, if I hadn't already played this a fair bit, it would be higher. But you know, regardless, I mean, everything that's on this list, I'm excited for. Make no mistake. This just happens to be the first one I played at number 51, COG, or C-O-G. Now, let's move on to number 50. Another game that I've already done a run-through for, because I played it, uh, the prototype when it was on Kickstarter. Uh, Gamelin Games from Scott Alms. Tiny Epic Quest. And so once again, you can check out my run-through to learn more, but suffice to say, this is a very, very charming competitive race game set in a fantasy kingdom, and it really tries to emulate the feel of the original Legend of Zelda. Or more to the point, not being most people remember it, um, but um, you know, Legends of Zelda 2, The Adventures of Link, it really has a feel of that game because this is a game that emulates the overworld experience. If you remember old classic, you know, NES and Super NES and uh, Sega Master System and Genesis games, where you spend a good deal of time just walking around the world, going from town to dungeon, and occasionally you'd get waylaid along the way, and you know, and that was a big part of the adventure. The this entire game is is all about overworld traversal. And it's a very, very cool, clever idea. And if it wasn't enough that the theme is really neat, 
the components are off the chart. This has, by far, the coolest meeples in board game history. And... I, you know, you have to see them to believe them. You can go check out my run-through because I had these really awesome prototypes for them. It's a really neat game. It's fun. It's clever. Our only real problem with it was the board, the art design, because the board is comprised of a bunch of, you know, that you're creating this overworld of a fantasy kingdom, and it's done by putting a bunch of cards together, and the art was kind of busy. Jen really had a problem reading it, but the gameplay itself was really, really sharp, and that is Tiny Epic Quest. And now, moving on to number 49. The Island of Dr. Necrow, 2nd Edition. Oh, yeah. Dr. Necrow, this was one of the very first games I ever picked up when I was new into modern board games. I was looking for more cooperative games after Pandemic was such a big hit for me and Jen, and Dr. Necrow was one of our first successes at trying to find another game. We very much enjoyed it. We still have the game to this day. Even though, I'll be honest... It, you know, it's really not the kind of game that we tend to go for, and maybe there's a little bit of nostalgia going on here for me, because in a nutshell, this is a game where we are a bunch of kind of um, pulp science fiction, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon type uh, heroes. It's really cool. We make our heroes by combining verbs and nouns to get you know unique combinations of, of attributes. It's really nice. And again, very, very evocative of old serialized science fiction films. Really, really like that. And we have come to the island of Dr. Necro, which is about to sink in the ocean because of an exploding volcano, and we're trying to rescue a group of scientists who have been tasked to build the Doomsday Machine. And um, so we've got to get in, find the scientists, and find the escape vehicle before time runs out. And you spend a lot of time in this game rolling dice to resolve encounters. Normally, that's something Jen and I hate. Um, but in this game, it was... Was, again, maybe it's nostalgia, maybe it's because one of our first games we actually played, we definitely enjoyed it here. Um, you know, I drew, I draw parallels to this. It's very much like Pathfinder, the adventure card game, but heavier, with more meaty decisions to make and a lot more challenging. And, you know, we really like it. And now the second edition is coming out. It's getting a big revamp. I think it's getting a big box. It's getting, a, you know, completely redone art. A lot of new elements. I'm really interested to see how the game has evolved. Because the original came out years and years and years ago. And I think it's going to be on Kickstarter in 2017. So that's our number 49, The Island of Dr. Necro's second edition. Then, number 48, Skyways. And this was another one. This was actually supposed to be... Or no, no. It was on Kickstarter, I think, in 2016. But it didn't look like it was going to fund. So the publisher pulled it. And you know this is often the case. And now they're going to revamp and they're going to put it back on Kickstarter in 2017. And we'll see how it goes. Um, now, I was interested in this game right from the get-go. Because it's from Jeffrey Allers. Who is you know one of the co-designers of Lee Octa S. He designed uh, New Amsterdam. He designed Citrus. I really like this guy's games. He's very very sharp. And so, I mean, just name recognition alone, I was wanting to check this out. But the gameplay itself looks very, very cool. It is a another SimCity-esque city-building game, but this one is set kind of in our near future, where the uh, cities are kind of festooned with motorways in the sky, and so a big part of the game is combining all these roadways uh, while also building the buildings. I don't know that much about it, but I believe there's kind of a 3D element to it, if I recall correctly. I might be remembering wrong. Um, but I'm hoping, because this was what really kind of confused me. I'm a Jeffrey Allers fan. I love SimCity building games. I cover a lot of Kickstarter prototypes. I have no idea why the publisher didn't send me a prototype for this. I'm kind of hoping they do, so that I, you know, I mean, so 
So, so, but we'll see what happens. Either way, I'm interested in the game. I hope it sees a lot of day because Jeffrey Allers is a really great designer. So that's number 48, Skyways. And now, on to number 47, Fog of Love. Yet another game I've done a run-through for. I mean, I did a lot of prototypes in uh, 2016. And so now we get to see them come to fruition in 2017. This was a very, very neat game. Very unique. It's a two-player-only game. And it's basically... When I first talked to the designer about it, when I met him at Spiel, he said, yeah, I'm trying to make a a board game out of a romantic comedy. This is a game where um, players are a romantic couple, and... And the game basically charts their entire relationship from the meet-cute up to um, the very end, whether that means living happily ever after into old age or having a nasty breakup or having an amicable breakup. You know, any type of rom-com outcome you can imagine will happen in this game. And what's really interesting about the game is, as part of setup, you get a collection of traits that you have to keep secret that define... They give you a direction uh, to um, to go when you're having to answer tough relationships questions like toilet seat up or down, um, first visit to the parents, you know these kinds of events that happen in a relationship or arguments and discussions and whatnot. And you make your decisions based on what your traits are, whether you are needy or humble or um, lazy or whatever it might be. And the trick to succeeding at this game is I have to figure out, based on the choices you make, what your personality traits are. This replicates a real relationship where I do need to get to know you. After the meet cute is over, we got to figure out if we're really compatible or not, because maybe we aren't. Maybe my traits are completely the opposite of yours, and if we can figure that out, hey, we can try to steer the game towards an amicable breakup. Unless I've got a personality trait that makes me want to steer the relationship towards a breakup where I get out before you do. Or maybe we're simpatico and we can make this thing work and live happily ever after. It's an incredibly charming game. And um, we really were taken with it. So I'm excited to see the full game because about the only thing that I was left wanting from the prototype was more cards, more events, more interesting stuff to happen. So I'm hoping there'll be a lot more in the final commercial version of number 47, Fog of Love. Now we're on to number 46, Perfect Storm Alaska. And this is another game that has been um, showing up on my games of anticipation list year after year after year. I'm really excited about this. I can't wait for it. Um, It's basically uh, a deep sea fishing simulation, but in heavy, heavy storms. So an equal amount of time is spent trying to harvest, but also trying to stay alive. And that is... Very, very attractive to me. It's a very, very interesting uh, subject matter. I, you know, I'm Jen and I both are always kind of more drawn to subject matter where people are put into tough situations, not for fun. Like, I mean, we have a really hard time. I mean, we love K2, which is a game about mountain climbing. But in the back of our minds, we're always thinking, nobody's forcing you to climb up this crazy mountain and risk your life. You're kind of crazy to do this. And we kind of lose a little bit of interest in the implicit drama because this is kind of dumb. A game like Perfect Storm, where, no, these are people just trying to make a living and you know provide for their families, and yet they're put into harm's way, is instantly super compelling, super evocative for us. So I've been excited for this for a long time. Um, also, it's coming from NSK in from uh, Andre Novak, and I really love Praetor. I really love progress, evolution of uh, technology. So 
I'm looking forward to this, and I will continue to look forward to this until someday it actually comes out. Will it be 2017? Time will tell. But anyway, let's move on to number 45. Five-Minute Dungeon. Another game that I have already played. And you notice, I mean, a lot of the ones I've already played are really kind of showing up here at the, at the top of the list because, hey, I've already played them. And it's kind of hard for me to, um, uh, you know, separate from the fact that, or I already know how to play. I've played this game a bunch of times, so I'm a little bit less excited about it now because I've already gotten... But, I mean, they're all good. I mean, I, 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 I just don't want to get the impression. I mean, every single game on this list, as far as I'm concerned, is exciting and worthy of interest. And Five-Minute Dungeon is definitely one as well. It's a real-time cooperative dungeon. Dungeon Crawl. Jen and I had a blast playing it. We had a blast filming it together. And it's a blast. It's, did I say blast? Yeah. It takes five minutes. And, um, you know, it's incredibly tense, incredibly stressful, but incredibly fun. You can watch the run through to find out why. Very excited to get the final version, number 45, Five Minute Dungeon. Then on to number 44. I think this actually got mentioned in a previous podcast because it was announced a while ago. But once again, it didn't make it out in 2016 as hoped. It is Jump Drive. And I don't really know much about this other than it's from designer Tom Lehman. And it's him revisiting Race for the Galaxy and making a more streamlined kind of uh, gateway-ish version of that great modern classic game. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm just so intrigued by that. Um, you know, I mean, it's very, very cool. It's interesting. I mean, last year, Jen, in 2016, Jen and I, we finally did get rid of our Race for the Galaxy. Not because we didn't love it, but because Roll for the Galaxy just... I mean, we, we would never play Race. We, we would always either play San Juan or Roll for the Galaxy. San Juan with the expansion. And so Race, I just realized, was never actually going to get played again. So, but I, I'm not going to lie. I kind of miss it. I kind of regret getting rid of it. So, I mean, maybe that's part of why I'm excited about checking out Jump Drive and seeing another take on it. I mean, who knows? No, I mean, you know, very little information is available about it other than this box cover. Uh, but I'll be looking forward to finding out more. Number 44, Jump Drive. Number 43. Now, this is actually a game that's been out for several years, but only through GameCrafter, which is a very, very neat service. You go to GameCrafter.com, and there are hundreds and hundreds of game designs. You can go on there, and they're all print-on-demand. You read the description of it, you think that sounds cool, you read the rules, you say buy it, and this this Game Crafter production company will actually make a copy for you and send it out. Um, and I don't really get a chance to play Game Crafter games very much because I've done it in the past, and whenever they get sent overseas, I get nailed every time with really harsh import um, taxes. You know, uh, customs taxes. And that's a bummer, because I've wanted to check out Captain is Dead for quite a while. It is a cooperative game of starship management, which, you know, it, this could be retitled Star Trek the Original Series, the cooperative board game. Because it is. Players are all members of the bridge crew, running around the ship, heading over to engineering to make sure the... Whatever the equivalent of dilithium crystals are realigned and heading over to the transport and getting to the bridge and going to sickbay and dealing with invaders and it just, as a, as a hardcore Trek fan, I mean, it just seems like it's going to scratch all of my itches. Jen loves Trek too, so I've been wanting to play this forever. But again, the game crafter barrier with the import taxes was just too much for me to bear. So that's why I'm super excited that it has now been picked up by AEG and is going to get a big deluxe reprint. And so, yay! Finally, Captain is dead. The Captain is dead! That's the story. You know, the Captain is dead, and so now we're all members of the crew, and we're having to run around like chickens with our head cut off trying to save the ship without a, without a Captain. 
Really, really cool. The art looks nice. The subject matter is great. We love cooperative games. Cannot wait to check out The Captain is Dead. Very excited for that one. But let's move on to number 42, which is known as Harvest. And I believe this is another Tasty Minstrel title. Uh, they're going to have a very good year this year, I think, 2017. And um, I'm not going to say it's a sequel to Harbor, be, but it sure looks like it is. Um, it's the same basic small box size. And where Harbor was kind of like a little streamlined, um, you know, mini Lahav. It took the ideas of Lahav. I'm wondering, I don't know this because again, there's not that much information available at this point, but I'm wondering if Harvest is kind of like a little mini Agricola. If so, I think that would be awesome. But it, I honestly, I don't really know, but I do, I did love the form factor of Harbor. And this is going to have the same thing. It's gonna, it looks like it's a, sequel. It looks like it's set in the same kind of fantasy universe. And, you know, Tasty Minstrel Games, I've mentioned it earlier, they can kind of do no wrong in my books because they're really sharp. They put out good game after good game, and if it's got their um, logo on it, I'm going to be interested. So that's why Harvest is number 42. Then we move on to number 41, Kingsburg 2nd Edition. Wow, this is one of several 2nd um, Edition reprint-style things. This is going to be a big year for that, it would seem. And Kingsburg is a game that has been waiting for a reprint forever. You know, it came out quite a few years ago. It was really the first game that popularized the notion of dice worker placement. And, uh, you know, and it did it really, really well. And it was one of the early games that Jen and I played when we first got into board games. Because back then, it was a relatively easy game to get your hands on. These days, it's much tougher because it's been out of print forever. And its expansion is even tougher to get a hold of. Now, Jen and I, we did like it when we played it. But this was really one of the first, if not the first game, where I was struck by just how bad Jen can suffer from analysis paralysis. AP as it's known. And um, and so we ultimately traded it away because, I mean, the game was just so... We liked it, but it was so slow going. Uh, but now, we are much more experienced board gamers. And I'm really curious to give Kingsburg another try. And the nice thing is, the super rare expansion has now been worked into the base game, and it's including new content that's you know been completely designed from the ground up. So, this is really a big revved up second edition. It's got a whole new art style, which is weird. It's been controversial because, you know, the early images of the board were put out, and a lot of people hated it. I actually saw a prototype of this at Essen Spiel 2016, and I thought it looked gorgeous. So I don't know what the problem is. Maybe it's one of those things where it just, you know, you got to see it in real life to really appreciate it, and it doesn't really translate well online with tiny little pictures. I don't know. But long story short, number 41, very excited for Kingsburg 2nd Edition. And now, on to number 40, Legacy Time Surge. Now, a couple of years ago, I did a run-through for Legacy Gears of Time, which is a game Jen I really enjoy. And it's weird. It's uh, one of the very few area control games that we will hold onto because area control can be a pretty aggressive, in-your-face style of gameplay. You know, it's 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 by its it's it's in, it's by its very nature conflict conflict heavy. But we keep it anyway because the gameplay was so cool. It's a, the original one, Legacy Years of Time, is a time travel game where we are traveling back in time and trying to be the ones who invent major breakthroughs in human technology, like the internet, or television, or spaceflight, or fire, or the wheel. Or the printing press. And it's very, very cool because it creates this cascade. You can, I mean, I could try to invent 
space flight, but space flight can't exist unless I or somebody else invents fire. And so, maybe if I see that Jen has invented fire in the early days, that will put everything in place so that I can invent space flight later on. But that means I'll score points for space flight. Jen will score points because I'm using her invention of fire to fuel my invention. But if I don't want her to get points off of my space flight invention, I can go back into time even further into the past than Jen did and invent fire before she did. Really cool game. So clever. You know, every time somebody says, yeah, there aren't really any good time travel board games, I say, what is wrong with you? Anyway, Legacy Gears of Time is very, very cool. I mention all that because, again, number 40 is Legacy Time Surge. This is um, the same designer revisiting that entire conceit and turning it into a two-player-only card game. That could be very, very cool. I don't know much about it. I'm expecting it's probably going to take on the the format of like a you know like a battle line or lost cities or you know one of those kind of things where player or, you know, a, a arena Roma where players are on either side of the timeline and I'm playing my cards to my side you're playing your cards to your side that seems like a no brainer and the core game was so good but I, I cannot wait to check out its new card game two-player-only version, so I'm very, very excited for number 40, Legacy Gears of Time. And you know what? Before we keep going, folks, I am very thirsty. I really, before I start filming, I right, must get drink of water, and then I totally forgot. So I'm going to put you on hold for a sec. I'll be right back. Okay, everybody, I am back. Hold on a second. Should have taken that drink before I filmed. Um, anyway, all right, um, or recorded, hit the record button. But yeah, that's Sorato. Anyway, let's keep on going. Number 39, Apocrypha the Adventure Card Game. I mentioned briefly, when I, a little bit earlier in this podcast, Pathfinder the Adventure Card Game, which is such an odd game. I mean, it's totally one that Jen and I should not like because it is all about just flipping cards seeing what challenges are, and then rolling a ton of dice to try to overcome those challenges. This is the kind of gameplay that Jen and I typically cannot stand. Uh, and yet, Pathfinder the Adventure card game, like, uh, what was the other one I was talking about? Oh, Island Doctor Crow kind of overcame that limitation shortcoming, and Jen and I really enjoyed it. Now, a big reason for that is because of, in Pathfinder the Adventure card game, the kind of epic nature of its campaign play, which is very, very cool. Anyway, I mention all that because Apocrypha, the adventure card game, is from Mike Selinker, the same designer. And Apocrypha is a game that Mike has been working on for years. It's kind of like been his passion project. You know, his big magnum opus he's been working on. It's been his Citizen Kane that he's been working on for a long time with a bunch of people. He's got a whole design team putting this thing out. And as over the years he's been working on it, he put it on hold for a while to take the ideas of it and put it into uh, Pathfinder, the adventure card game, Rise of the Rune Lords. And then after that was done and out the door, he went right back to Apocrypha. So, what this means is, Apocrypha represents a style of game that for whatever reason Jen and I enjoy, kind of almost in spite of the gameplay, but... 
It is the culmination of this game design that that he's been working on for years that we've already experienced in kind of like an early almost prototype form. And so I'm very, very excited to see it through. I want to go on this trip with Mike. Now, I'm a little bit turned off or a bit concerned because this is kind of a horror setting. I don't know. It's it's some kind of, I don't know, know, there's an undercurrent of uh, demonic uprising in the world and we're the only people who know about it and we have to save the world from the rising horror and stuff like that. So I don't know. That might be a turn off for Jen. I'm not sure if I'm correctly identifying it, but it's something like that. But still, I'm willing to give it a try. Um, my fingers are crossed. It's my number 39, Apocrypha, the adventure card game. Then, 38. Ooh, we're back to games that Jen and I have already played, because um, I did uh, prototype run-throughs. This one is Spirit Island. And wow, it is. it was such a cool, unique Breath of fresh air when we played the prototype. It's a cooperative game. But, you know, in most cooperative games, you're some brave hero. You, you got, um, you're represented on the board by you know, the little avatar who moves around. And, you know, they all kind of follow the pandemic mold. You know, not that pandemic was the first cooperative board game, but it's the one that really cracked the code. And uh, everybody else, you know, uh, you know, follows on from. Spirit Island says to heck with that code. We are throwing that code away. We are flipping everything on its head. Here's the pitch for this game. What if settlers of Catan, in Settlers of Catan, the island fought back? What if, in Settlers of Catan, the colonists were the bad guys? That's the situation. In Spirit Island, we are the spirits of nature who protect this island. You know, the spirit of water, the spirit of earth, spirit of fire, spirit of the air. And um, we have all kinds of cool, special spirit powers. And we are prote- the board is this island where little settlers have landed. You know, they've come from over the seas and they're trying to create a new life and, um, you know, set up farms and, you know, build a civilization, a society, build roads and all this stuff. And we were saying, no, we will stop you any way we can. And so we use all our special powers to try and push back on their constant, continual expansion inwards. And I just love that. I mean, there are so many colonization games, which is all about building up the civilization. And in this game, it flips the whole thing on its head. And then on top of all that, forget about the fact that it's just a really cool, fresh, original theme. The gameplay was really fun, too. But you can check out my run-through to find out more. That's number 38, Spirit Island. Number 37, another uh, uh, hit that we enjoyed very much last year, Sagrada. And now this is a game about players trying to build the best stained glass windows. Um... And, oh, wow, it was a lot of fun. The prototype I had was absolutely gorgeous. It came with these really lovely translucent dice. And you're rolling the dice and placing them in this grid that represents the creation of a stained glass window. And when it's all done, you have a wonderfully bright, colorful, vibrant little piece of stained glass art in the form of all these dice. But the puzzle to lay those dice out is very cool. Very clever. Jan and I enjoyed this quite a bit, so I'm very excited to get the final one. That's number 37, Sagrada. Then, number 36, Clockwork Islands. This is one I don't know much about again. This is on the list predominantly because of the pedigree of the designer behind it. Don Lloyd, years ago, put out on Kickstarter a game called Dark Horse. It was actually one of the first successful board games that was Kickstarted ever. Um, And it was... 
a dice worker placement game. And unfortunately, you know, dice worker placement is pretty common these days. You know, people really love on Marco Polo and, uh, you know, obviously Alien Frontiers is a big deal. I'm sure a lot of people are super, super stoked for the reprint of Kingsburg. Hey, I guess I am because I mentioned it too. But for some reason, a dark horse just slips between the cracks, even though it's a really excellent, excellent dice worker placement game. It did a lot of really great stuff. So we've really enjoyed it. And so much so, I've actually done a few run-throughs for it over the years. But Clockwork Island is done, finally moving on and giving us something new. Dark Horse was so great, I am just there with bells on. I can't wait to see what he's come up with. He's been working on this for years, so I know it's going to be a labor of love. It's a passion project for him. Um, and so I cannot wait to see what Clockwork Island is all about. That's why it's my number 36. The number 35, another game I've done a run-through for last year, Chimera Station. Once again, Tasty Minstrel Game strikes. This is a worker placement game where we are running the Chimera Station, or actually building this space station called the Chimera Station. And the workers we have are genetically spliceable aliens. These cute little guys that we can take into the genetics lab and give them um, certain attributes, like tentacles, or bigger brains, or what have you. And um, as we tinker with their genetic makeup, and specialize them to be able to be particularly good at different tasks, we then put them to work to build the station and score points. Now, the prototype I had, uh, we actually physically put these little alien workers together by snapping together different colored Legos. That was just a way to prototype it. The final shipping game actually comes with these neat little modular alien pieces that snap together to make cool little genetically modified aliens. It looks so cool, and I'm really excited about it. And then on top of that, the gameplay was really rock solid. Now, you can check out my run-through to find out more and see why, but it was just a really, really well-considered worker placement game. So that's why it's number 35, Chimera Station. Then on to number 34, Arcology. Don't know much about this, haven't seen any pictures, haven't read the rules, don't care. It is from designer Albin Viard, and... Every one of his games I've done a run-through for, Jen and I have enjoyed immensely. Starting with Town Center, moving on to Small City, moving on to Clinic. Uh, last year he did Tramways, and now this is the latest. Actually, uh, in the description he says it's the end of his Small City trilogy that started with, I guess... Town Center, and then went on to Small City, and is now going to be Arcology. I don't know where Clinic fits into that as well. But anyway, long story short, this is a game where he mixes the 3D block stacking puzzle of Town Center with the depth and complexity of Small City, which was a which was a very heavy, heavy game. He's taking both all the ideas from those, mashing it together into this new beast, and setting it in the future. We're building some kind of crazy science fiction metropolis in 3D with um, you know, all of his, the, you know, the central thing that's been in all of his games is this notion that as you start to build the thing, the thing can grow and expand on its own. You create the circumstances whereupon it can um, you know, evolve. It's very, very cool. All of his other games have been really, really great, so I have high, high hopes for number 34, Arcology. Then on to number 33, another, I guess, kind of reprint slash second edition, Thrashing Dice Assassin Edition. Daisy! Daisy! Uh, Daisy is really rocking out on this. Uh, she is looking out the window. I assume somebody must be walking around with a dog, and it's driving her nuts. Daisy! You know what, folks? We're going to have to check out this. We'll be right back.
Okay, apparently the danger has passed. It was a couple of dogs out for a walk. And um, Daisy saved us from, from that peril. Anyway, where was I? Mm. Uh, number 33, Thrashing Dice Assassin Edition. This is a reprint of a dice worker placement game that came out um, that Jen and I really enjoyed called Thrash and Roll. This was really interesting because, you know, Jen had absolutely no interest in the subject matter of building up and managing a successful thrash metal band. Um, but the gameplay itself was so good. We put, uh, you know, she put aside her complete disdain. She would have much rather been building up some kind of pop band or pretty much just anything other than thrash metal. But regardless, the gameplay was so good, we enjoyed it anyway. Anyway, the designer has basically, I guess, maybe you could call this a sequel? Um, it's its a re-implementation. Uh, it uses the same basic ideas, but you know, there's tons of new stuff. Uh, new game modes, new cards, tweaks to the gameplay, the way scoring works. Apparently, when this comes out, there will also be an upgrade kit available, so folks like me who have Thrash and Roll will be able to get all the new stuff, and people who didn't get Thrash and Roll can jump in with the new one, Thrash and Dice, Assassin Edition. I don't know really the particulars about what's new, but like I said, the base game was already so good. And if he's gone back and he's making it even better, count me in. I am excited. Number 33, Thrash and Dice. Now number 32. Oh my gosh, another reprint. I had not realized until I'm actually reading all these out just how much reprint heavy uh, reprint Palooza 27 is apparently going to be the case. Number 32 on my list is Brass, which is a Martin Wallace classic. For many people, it is his greatest design accomplishment to date. And I'll be honest, it's great. It's absolutely phenomenal game. Jen and I enjoy it quite a bit. Um, we, we've actually had it and enjoyed it. I got rid of my copy as soon as I found out that this new reprint was coming from Roxley Games. And this isn't the first reprint. There, I guess, last year, maybe the year before, there was some controversy around Brass Deluxe Edition. I'm not really quite sure what all was going on there. I know there was some, there was some friction between the designer Martin Wallace and the publisher, and it ultimately came out anyway. And, and people were really they were, all, they were all on the fence. But this new version coming out in 2017 from a completely different publisher, in theory, should not have any of that drama around it because, as I understand it, Martin Wallace is on board with this reprint. And again, it's not just a reprint. It's completely redoing the art, the graphic design from the ground up. Um, it's, f uh, it's including an additional two-player map because Brass originally was a three-player minimum game, but then the, the fans of it turned it into a two-player game and did such a good job that Martin Wallace has finally said, yes, this is a good two-player game. I support it. And so it comes with a two-player map now. I guess the deluxe version did as well. But Martin Wallace has actually designed an entirely new map as well. Um, so it will be available to play with Brass. So, hooray! So I got rid of my old copy of Brass. I'm looking forward to this new copy of Brass from Roxley Games in 2017. Number 32. Number 31. Brazil. Okay, this is um, from the designers of Madeira. It came out a couple of years ago from What's Your Game? And Madeira was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant design that was unfortunately kind of... It just went over the tipping point of a little bit too much for me and Jen. It was so deep, so rich, so... Oh, man, it was, it was just so much. It was crazy heavy, yo. And it was a bit too much for us, but... We certainly appreciated and respected the design of it, even if it was ultimately too much for us when we uh, traded away. Long story short, that design duo is back at long last. Um, Nuno Centario and um, 
Oh, what's the other? Yeah, Soledad. Anyway, they're back. This is their new big heavy euro from What's Your Game. You know, What's Your Game, whenever they put out a game, I am there. I mean, they, they can do no wrong in my eyes, even if they do end up occasionally making something that's too heavy for me and Jen. Will this be too heavy? I don't know. I'm excited to find out, though. Apparently, it's about gold mining in 18th century Brazil. That's interesting. That's a topic I haven't really heard a lot about it in board gaming. And... um the designer pedigree is spotless. So, the count me on. I'm on board. Let's go to Brazil. Number 31. All righty. Number 30, Dragon's Gate College. Ooh, all right. This one I'm, I'm stoked for, um, for for two reasons. The designer um, team and the theme. This is from the designers who put out Yido and Kill Shakespeare. These were both excellent, excellent games that very sadly flew under the radar. And, you know, they were kind of marred by production issues. And, and you know, and they just never really caught fire, even though they were both excellent designs. I really liked them both. And um, now the, the, the guys are finally back. And I'm hoping this game... Well, they've, they've landed with a new publisher, NSKN, and NSKN for the last few years have really made a name for themselves of very, very high-quality, well-produced games um, that really get a lot of attention. And so I'm hoping, finally, these guys hit it big with Dragon's Gate College. So... I'm just happy about the story behind this game, you know, that finally, uh, you know, a couple of plucky guys make good and produce something that, um, you know, hopefully gets the attention that they have deserved for quite a while, in my eyes. Um, but, put all that aside, I would be interested in this game anyway, solely because it is a, um, you know, a Harry Potter-esque, Hogwarts-themed uh, dice drafting game. I love dice drafting. Jen loves dice drafting. Um, Jen loves Harry Potter. I like Harry Potter. I like these guys' design chops. I like NSKN games. There's nothing not to like here. That's why it's number 30, Dragon's Gate College. And then on to number 29, Zombies Run, the board game. And now, this was an interesting one, definitely, uh, because... Well, it, it was on Kickstarter last year and it succeeded, and I'm kind of bummed. I wish they had contacted me to... Uh-oh. Oh, Jen just got back. I gotta go out and help her, folks. This is my third pause. All right, well, Beeb, hold on. Zombies run, or zombies will run in just a moment. Okay, it has now been a couple of hours, and I've totally lost track of where were we. Let's see, on the screen here, it looks... Okay, zombies run, the board game. Yeah, so, what did I say about this? Well, okay, I don't remember, but here's the story. This was on Kickstarter last year, and I'm kind of bummed they didn't actually send me a prototype, because I would have loved to have covered it, because I'm very, very intrigued by the, the notion of this game. It comes from the fact that the developers of this first developed another game on Kickstarter called Zombies Run, and that was a smartphone game. And it has exploded in popularity. It is a hugely popular exercise-based game where if you're going to go out jogging, you download this app, you got your earbuds, you, um, you know, you, you, I, I assume, I've never actually played with the app, but I assume you tell it your 
fitness goals and all that stuff. And it comes up with a plan for telling you when you should sprint and when you should run. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like a training partner buddy that you have in your ear while you're out running. But it's also an interactive storytelling device because it casts players of, again, the smartphone game in a zombie apocalypse where communications have broken down. There's no more gasoline. And so messages get from one outpost to the other by runners. And you are a runner running uh, messages from one place to another, a courier, basically. And while you're out jogging, you are listening to storytelling, a cast of characters who talk over the radio and give your directions about where you're supposed to go. And, you know, when the zombies are attacking you, that's when you're supposed to run really fast. And then after you've outrun them, you can slow back down. And so it modulates your exercise. And, um, you know, and, but again, they've got this huge cast of characters, tons of interactive storytelling based on what type of exercise you do, I guess. And so they've made a ton of content for this original smartphone game. And again, it's hugely popular. I mean, if, if I were at all into exercise, I would totally be using this thing. It sounds absolutely awesome. It's like there's, it, it's like you're listening to a book on tape while you're running, except you're the star of the book and the book changes based on how you run. That's awesome. But anyway. So they made that. It was hugely popular. And then they decided, hey, we've got all this multimedia content, all these diaries and, you know, or, you know, and, and uh, audio transcripts and various things. Let's make a board game out of it, too. And I'm like, yeah, well, let's do that. So they've made Zombie Run the board game, which is a real-time cooperative game where players are, again, these, these couriers in the zombie apocalypse running from place to place, picking things up and delivering them, basically. But um, you, you download the app for this game, it would similar to the original smartphone app, and the game is giving you directions and instructions and telling you what to do and letting you know when you succeed and when you fail, all in real time, using this huge wealth of multimedia content that they had already developed for this other successful game they made. So that is awesome. I mean... It's no big surprise. I love zombies anyway. Uh, and I mean, so I'm, I'm just implicitly interested. I love cooperative games. I love real-time games. And um, I love app-driven games. This is all of that. And I mean, and I love the overlap. I mean, heck, maybe if we get into this game, uh, maybe it'll encourage me to actually start running. Who knows? I could certainly use it. I am the laziest man in Malta. Um, and I, yeah. But anyway, zombies run the board game. I'm very excited. It's my number 29 for those reasons. Then on to number 28, Fugitive. This is another one I've done a run-through for last year. You can check it out. But this is a very neat little two-player asymmetrical game where one player is the uh, fugitive trying to escape from their hideout to get to the airport to, you know, to, to get away. The other player is the federal marshal chasing them down. So it's very much Tommy Lee Jones versus Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. And in fact, when Jen and I were playing it, I was constantly um, breaking out the Tommy Lee Jones outhouse, doghouse, roadhouse, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And... <laughs> I don't care. You know, it, 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 you know, it's very, it's surprising. It's a really simple, it's an abstract little card game, but it's still very evocative. When you are the fugitive, you do feel incredible tension as the marshal is searching around and it's just like one step behind you and at any given time he might catch you. And when you're the marshal, you're just like looking at this board saying, I have no idea where you are. But slowly over time, the more you investigate, the more you search, the more you, um, you know, basically create this dragnet that tightens around the fugitive. And it's 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 absolutely brilliant. It's such a simple little game. It's a deck of cards, but there's so much flavor and story that comes out of it. I was absolutely just blown away by this game, and so it's relatively high at number 28, Fugitive. 
Next up, got Edge of Humanity. This is actually a deck builder that I got to play a round or two of at Essen Spiel, and I was very impressed by it for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of cool things here. And see, and based on my recollection, the way well, first of all, it's a post-apocalypse game. But it could be one of any number of post-octaves. Because what happens is the first thing you do when you set up the game is you got to make the event deck. It's a cooperative game, so every round and another event's going to happen and players have to... Um, oh, wait, 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 wait. Was it cooperative? No, actually, now I think about it, I don't think it was cooperative. There's still an event that happens every round, but I think it's a competitive where each player is trying to survive in the post-apocalypse the best. Not in a way that we attack each other and try to kill each other, but just everybody's trying to do their best to survive. But anyway, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so first thing you do as part of setup is you create the event deck. And what you do is, you, uh, the game comes with a bunch of different decks um, that represent locations and storylines. Locations like city. Forest, um, uh, you know, countryside, uh, you know, a uh, military base, whatever. Uh, so you've got all these location decks, and then you've got all these apocalypse decks, like zombie, alien invasion, viral outbreak, or whatever. So you take a random location deck, you take a random apocalypse deck, you shuffle them all up, and you've got a unique storyline for where you are and what's happening and what you need to do to survive. That in and of itself, right there, is very cool. I like that. But then it's a deck building game. And you start out with a weak deck full of supplies and whatnot, and there are cards that come out that are available every round that you can recruit, you know, to add to your deck to become strong, you know, other survivors and tools and equipment and all that. But here's the interesting way it works is, you know, I've got my hand of cards, and I can see all the cards that are out there available to draft to add to my deck. What I have to do is every round, I have to pick one of the cards from my deck and burn it. This game, this is a deck builder where thinning your deck is built in. Every round, you are permanent going to destroy one card. Every card in the game has a number on it, and um, basically, the higher the number, when, when you burn this card, when you're playing it, and everybody reveals at the same time the card they decide to destroy, you are thinning your deck, but you're also bidding to see who gets first dibs on all the stuff that's available. So it's like a blind bid auction crossed with a deck builder deck thinning kind of thing. So early on, you've got all these supplies that have numbers on them, and so you're, okay, well, we will burn through these supplies, and that's a number seven, and oh, I hope that's a higher than the, oh, and you played a five, oh, good. So that means I get to, that means I, you know, our supplies got us further and we get to recruit before you do. It was neat. It was very, very clever. It worked really nicely and felt, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, keep bringing deck builders. As long as you come up with something new to add, I'll be there. This thing definitely added new stuff. It was really clever, very evocative, nicely put together, I, you know, and I'm really excited to try it for reals instead of just a quick demo round it. That's in Spiel. So, I'm stoked for it. Number 27, Edge of Humanity. And now, mm, get a drink of water here. Mm. This is the last one. Number 26, First Martian Adventures on the Red Planet. Yet another Mars game. Um, this one from designer Ignacy Trebchak. And this is basically Ignacy revisiting his mega popular Robin Crus Robinson Crusoe uh, Adventures on Curse Island, which is a cooperative game he put out several years ago now. That is still one of the most popular co-op games on the market today. People absolutely love, love, love this game. Uh, Robinson Crusoe has gotten an expansion, it's gotten tons of promos, and it's still just in regular rotation. People absolutely love it. It's a harsh, unforgiving, hybrid game that um, mixes you know, resource management, Euro-style stuff, and very Ameritrashy style thematic, story-driven, card snippet stuff. I mean, so Robinson Crusoe, hugely popular. Jen and I 
We played it. Jen didn't like it because it was too high pressure for her. She has a real problem with like, you know, high pressure, unrelenting co-ops. And me, I was a little put off by some of the Ameritrash elements, but we still thought it was cool. Anyway, so Ignazi has years later revisited it. He's taken the same basic mechanisms and now applying it to a story of survival on Mars, the first Martians adventure on the Red Planet. And so, of all the Mars games, I suspect this is going to be the most strongly story-driven. That's going to be the thing that really makes this one unique. Um, you know, and I'm sure there's resource management, because again, it's, uh, you know, it's Robinson Crusoe in space as the first Martians adventuring on the Red Planet. Another thing that's really cool about this is it's got a digital app that comes along with it. I don't know how it works. I don't know if it's supposed to replace the deck of cards from the, you know, the event cards you had to go up against, or maybe it does other things. All I know is, Robinson Crusoe is a great, great game. It's very well-loved. And since we played it, Jen has gotten a little bit more accepting, I think, than she used to be of relentless, high-pressure co-ops. So I've been long wanting to go back and try Robinson Crusoe again anyway. But now that Ignazi is completely revisiting it and upgrading it and revamping it and, most importantly, adding digital integration to it, I'm even more stoked. I cannot wait to give it. That's why it's number 26 on my list. Uh, try First Martians Adventure on the Red Planet. Okay. Now, there's still 25 to number one. The countdown continues, but not on this podcast. You can go to my YouTube channel, which is just, you know, rotto.com or youtube.com slash rotto, and you'll find um, there is a top 25 most anticipated games. So that will pick up where we're leaving off right now. But we're not done yet, folks, because I haven't talked about the expansions of 2017 that I'm really excited about, and I've got a whole bunch of them to go over as well. So hold on, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Okay, time to expand our minds in 2017. If I counted right, I think I've got 16 expansions to count down here, from least excited to most excited, although, again, that's misleading. I'm excited about all of these. I mean, you know, th these are the ones that made my list. There are, there's well over 100 additional titles that aren't on this countdown, but that I am still keeping track of for 2017, because I just need to learn more about them to know if I'm confident that, you know, that they weren't a level of excitement. So, Sorry, uh, blah, 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 blah. All right, that's out of the way. Let's start with number 16 on this expansion list, Thunderstone Quest. And I'll be honest, I haven't looked at this very much. Uh, and in fact, on my geek list, all I did is I included a link to a, to a post where somebody made, apparently, a very thorough list of all the changes to the Thunderstone formula that's going to happen with this new third edition re-release of Thunderstone. And you know, if you don't know what that means, what, what's going on with Thunderstone, Thunderstone was one of... After Dominion, Thunderstone was the first really popular... Not the first deck builder, but the first really popular deck builder. And in fact, I mean, Jedi, we enjoyed it quite a bit. And we got heavy into Thunderstone first edition. And in fact, I have a complete first edition collection of everything that was ever released. Uh, and some stuff is like really super rare. And um, then... After a year or two of success with that, uh, AEG decided to release Thunderstone Advanced, which is basically Thunderstone 2nd Edition. And for the life of me, I don't know why, 
but they they like did a big overhaul and suddenly overnight uh, you know Thunderstone First Edition was persona non grata and nobody cared about it even though as I understand it Thunderstone First Edition and Second Edition are compatible I mean you can mix and match apparently nobody does it and I, I'm not really quite sure I've never looked into it I remember when Advance came out I looked at what the differences were and I personally felt that they weakened the game because it, it's almost like I mean, I talked about this in my run-throughs for Runebound 3rd Edition and Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, that these were revamps of existing properties where the designers had gone out of their way to try to streamline and smooth out the experience, and in doing so, they kind of robbed the game of what made it magic in the first place. They kind of just made them sort of milk toast, And... I never played Thunderstone Advance, but from reading it, the fixes always kind of struck me as, but you're getting rid of some of the stuff that's really cool about Thunderstone. So, it was interesting. When Advance started, that's when I got off the Thunderstone train. In fact, I was actually kind of happy that they made this change because they gave me an excuse to stop buying expansion after expansion because I was just able to say, well, I'll just be the grumpy old man and stick with my first edition. I don't need your fancy second edition stuff uh, because I didn't want to have to feel obligated to keep on buying and buying and buying. And now, eventually, AEG, the publisher, stopped producing Thunderstone Advanced. And for a while, people thought, Oh, that's it. There's never going to be any more Thunderstone. Now, in 2017, they're bringing out Thunderstone Quest, the third edition. Ah, what are you doing, AEG? I don't know. Does that mean a whole bunch of advanced people are going to say, Oh, well, good. I don't have to jump in on this wagon train. I'll just stick with what I've got. I don't know. It's very weird. But my big question is, is the stuff that's in this new expansion backwards compatible to my first edition stuff? That I do not know. If it is... I'll check it out. If not, I'll probably just pass. So that's why this is where I'm starting. I'm very interested because Thunderstone itself was a good system. Jen and I definitely enjoyed it. Not as much as Dominion, but still very, very good. So it'll be interesting to see what Thunderstone Quest has to offer. Now, on number 15, ooh, this is cool, Railways of Nippon, which is a new expansion map for Railways of the World. And I'll be honest, I never thought I was going to get another Railways of the World uh, expansion. Because I've got Railways of Europe, which is awesome. I mean, I don't play Railways of the World. I play Railways of Europe because the game itself comes with a Mexico map and an Eastern United States map. The Mexico map is okay. It's specifically designed for two players, and it's way too cutthroat for me and Jen. And the Eastern United States is too big. You need more than two players. Railways of Europe map is awesome. It's absolutely phenomenal. Love it. We do have Railways of England and Wales, which we've never played because it introduces a stock market and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but we're just happy with Europe. I don't really, I never really felt like I was going to need another map. But now Railways of Nippon, which is basically making you know the rail advancement in Japan, is coming along. I'd be tempted to pass on it. Except one of the designers on it is Hishashi Hiyashi, uh, and you know who is one of the hottest designers in Japan. I mean, you know, he started out. I'm not sure if he started with trains, but trains kind of put him on the map. And last year he did Yokohama, which was a phenomenal game. And so that really piques my interest. I mean, with him working on it, do, are they changing anything? Is there are they adding something fundamentally new to the formula? I don't know. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. It's number 15, Railways of Nippon. Number 14. This is interesting. This is a, not officially an expansion. It's a full standalone game. It's called Catacombs 
and Castles. And it is a sequel to Catacombs, which I've done a run-through for. Catacombs is a very, very neat dungeon crawl dexterity game where you flick discs around to represent combat between uh, you know, brave heroes and monsters. And in that game... When we play it as a two-player game, I always play the dungeon master, controlling the monsters, and Jen always controls all the heroes. So, Catacombs and Castles is a standalone sequel. And what it happens is, it's no longer a dungeon crawl, it's monsters attacking a castle and heroes trying to defend it. But it's still a player-versus-player thing. So, that's cool, that's interesting, I like the, the change of scenery, but what I'm mostly interested in is as an expansion, because the new heroes and monsters and whatnot can be retroactively applied to catacombs. So it works both ways. It's, you know, and so I'm interested, I'm excited. We really, really like catacombs quite a bit. It's one of the few games we enjoy where we're at each other's throats, constantly trying to kill each other, just because it's so much fun. And again, if you want to know why, you can watch the run-through we did quite a while ago. It was a blast to film. It's a fun game to play. And so that is why at number 14, I have got Catacombs and Castles. And now we move on to number 13. And this is actually an entry, that, a single entry that represents a bunch of expansions. Uh, which one did I put in? I put in Hundred Swords, The Silver Queen's Dungeon. And this is actually an expansion for Hundred Swords, which is a neat little deck builder. Again, another deck builder that does something new and different. It's a dungeon crawl where the cards that are out on the table that represent the cards that you're drafting to try to add to your, your deck to make it stronger. Stronger, they are a dungeon. And when you put all the cards out, normally in a deck builder, like Ascension or whatnot, you can see what all the cards are that you can add to your deck. In this game, all the cards are put face down because they represent rooms you have to explore in a dungeon to find stuff. Sometimes you'll find equipment, sometimes you'll find treasure, sometimes you'll find monsters. So, um, you use the, the um, footstep ability, which is one of the decks you have in your card, to move around from room to room. When you get to a room, you get to flip it over, find out what it is, and decide whether you're going to add it to your deck or not. If it's a monster, you beat it, then you add it to your deck because it gives you some special power. And it's, it's a really clever game. Neat, fun, fast playing, very charming. And this year, 2017, I forget, there's like four or five little mini expansions that are going to come out for it. I want them all. And um, so this is an entry that represents all of those. Hundred Swords, the Silver Queen's Dungeon. But like I said, there's several other ones coming as well. 15. So that was number 15, because we're 18, 17, 16, 15. Now, on to number 14. Sorry, I think I miscounted. Number 14, Shadowrift Skittering Darkness. So Shadowrift finally got reprinted last year with a big deluxe overhaul, all new art, tweaked gameplay and whatnot, and expansions for it are coming now. Hooray! I love Shadowrift. Great uh, cooperative deck builder. Uh, really, the first one of note. And now, you know, cooperative fantasy deck builder adventure games are all the rage. There's tons of them. I could do, I could easily do a top 10 now, but Shadow Rift would definitely make the list because it was the first one and it's still one of the best ones. And it's getting another expansion this year. Skittering Darkness. Hooray! More Shadow Rift is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. And so that was number 14. Number 13 is Haspel Connect the Ruhr Valley. And I have to admit, I was surprised Haspel Connect was getting an expansion at all. I mean, the base game was so well-considered and just so rich and so much going on and so much replayability, so much variability. I mean, I never would have thought... If you'd told me, yeah, we're working on expansion, I'd say, really? Oh, that's cool. I mean, you don't need one. The base game has more than enough in that box. But, hey, they want to add more? Who am I to complain? I'm excited for Haspel Neck Ruhr Valley, which was number 14, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14. Now, number 13... 
And we get to Kingdom Builder Harvest. Yet another expansion for Kingdom Builder, which makes me very happy because Kingdom Builder is an awesome game, Jen. I absolutely love it. It's one of the few abstractish games we absolutely enjoy. And um, I'm so happy to see that it is continuing to get love because, I mean, I don't know why, Kingdom Builder gets so much um, meh from so many people on Board Game Geek who just don't appreciate it, when Jen and I, we think it's absolutely brilliant, totally deserving of the uh, Spiel des Jahres that it won a few years ago. And um, so, it just makes me happy to know that apparently it's popular enough that uh, yet another expansion is coming out. Hooray! Kingdom Builder! That was number 13. Then, on to number 12, Temporum Alternate Realities. Which is a... you know, Did I say earlier that I don't, I don't understand why people complain there's not enough cool time travel games? Temporum is a very cool time travel game. I've uh, done a run through so you can see how it works. Uh, Jen and I, we enjoy it quite a bit. And I am so happy that it's getting an expansion because, you know, unlike, uh, you know, um, Haspenek, Temporum really would benefit from having more variety, more time zones to, to, um, to visit, more cool time travel equipment to use to change the timeline and, and, um, score points. It's a really neat little game. It deserves a lot more love than it gets. Jen, I really like it. And so I'm so happy that number 12 on this expansion list is Temporum Alternate Realities. Then on to number 11, if I'm counting correctly, Tiny Epic Galaxies Beyond the Black. Done a run through for that. When it was on Kickstarter, I had a prototype. It was fantastic. Added some very, very cool new features. I can't imagine playing Tiny Epic Galaxies without this expansion. It was so good. It's one of those types of expansions that as soon as you implement it, it instantly becomes mandatory and you would never go back to playing the game without. It's that kind of expansion. Number 11... Um, yeah, Tiny Epic Galaxies Beyond the Black. And now we're getting into the finals. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4... Oh, man, I have completely lost count. Man, I shouldn't have done this. All right, let's see. Did I say Thunderstone was 16, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9? Okay, Temporum. I'm sorry. Temporum was number 9. Wow. I, I'm looking at this list without numbers. Oh, I, I total complete lack of preparation. Why am I even doing this? All right, so anyway, number 8 was Tiny Epic Galaxies. Number 7 is Mysterium 2nd Edition. And I did a run-through originally for Time Each Day de Mostwo, which was the Polish version of Mysterium. And uh, we liked it quite a bit. Although I've recently gotten the new Asmodee version that's available in languages other than Polish and Ukrainian, you know, which are the original two versions of the game. And it's very, very cool. I have to admit, I mean, I'm, there's actually a lot of stuff in the latest version that I love. And, um, and, the, and the latest version of Mysterium the Asmodee version, has gotten an expansion. And that was really cool. There's a lot of neat new cards in it, but that's all there was, was cards. Just new suspects and locations and weapons and and, and vision cards, dream cards. Um, but the thing is, the older Polish-Ukrainian version of the game, they've gotten a lot of really cool expansion content that Asmodee did not put into the first expansion, which was called Mysterium Hidden Signs. So I am so hoping that some of those cool new gameplay features, instead of just new card content, new gameplay features are added in this new Mysterium expansion that is coming, which doesn't even have a name yet. Right now it's just in Board Game Geek as Mysterium Second Expansion. Fingers crossed, it's not just more card art, but it's actually new cool stuff. All right, Next up, I'm done counting down. I keep forgetting what number is what. Um, next up on the expansion list, on the countdown, is Automobiles Racing Season. Automobiles totally shocked me and Jen. Blew us away. We did not expect to love this game as much as we do. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal game. And it's a bag builder uh, where uh, you are 
bag building to make the best race car in this F1 slash stock car race, just going around and around in circles around a board. Jen and I, neither of us have any interest in modern car racing simulation games. I was only interested because we liked the idea of bag building. We loved it every game we played it, but Orleans was the only one we kept. We didn't keep King's Pouch. Oh, we haven't played Hyperborea, to be fair. Um, and in fact, actually, actually, well, yeah, we really didn't. Well, long story short, I lo- we love Orleans, so we love the bag building concept. We'd yet to see another one that you know struck us as as strong as Orleans. Automobiles was just shy of being almost as good as Orleans. And really, when if you watch, go back and watch my run through where you know I had a fun time filming it. It was a blast to play. As I complained at, the, at that point, the only real problem I have with it is the two-player implementation is just a little bit dry. The game obviously wants more players because the more cars are on the track, the more interesting stuff happens as cars zip around each other. With only two cars on the track in a two-player game, it was a little dull. My understanding is this expansion goes a long way towards making the two-player game more compelling. And considering how much we already liked it, to have that one problem improved, and plus I'm sure there's other stuff in the expansion as well, you know, new engine parts, and or who knows what. I don't care. I want it because automobiles is great, and so I'm very excited about automobiles racing season. Then we've got Nations, the dice game. Hey, okay, I'm, we're getting towards the end. I can see. This is number five on the list, Nations, the dice game, Unrest. Which, one, I really, really hope that if an expansion is coming out for Nations, the dice game, that means a reprint is also coming out for Nations, the dice game, because I know a lot of people can't get it. Um, it's gotten very small, two very small print runs so far, I believe, and so it could really use another one, because it's such a lovely, fun, light, uh, fast little dice-chucking Yahtzee-inspired uh, civilization-building game. Jen, I absolutely love it. And I can't tell you how excited I am about this expansion because it's finally bringing the number one thing that was missing from the base game, unique civilization starting. I mean, the only problem with the base game, as far as I'm concerned, is it doesn't matter whether you're starting as China or Mesopotamia or whoever, every nation starts exactly the same. Unlike Nations, the board game, it's Big Brother, where all the different nations had very, very different starting situations. Nations, the dice game Unrest, finally addresses that and adds starting specialties for the nations. And that's not all. It adds a bunch of cool stuff. This is a very rich and robust expansion. A lot of neat things in there. I'm not going to list them all right now, but it sounds to me like a must-have. And again, when it comes out, hopefully everybody will be able to get a copy of Nations of Dice Game as well. All right, number four. Hero Realms, Ruins, the Ruin of Thandar. Now, this is interesting because I've actually got a copy of Hero Realms. And Hero Realms, by default, um, Hero Realms is based on the Star Realms deck-building mechanism. And I have to admit, I've never been that big a fan of Star Realms. It works. I can see why it's so hugely, amazingly popular. But for me and Jen, it played always a little bit too... It was a little too on rails. And, you know, just really didn't capture our attention. We really liked Cthulhu Realms because it added a lot more gaminess to the game. It was a much richer and more complex or more interesting combo change and things you could do with the cards. Whereas Star Realms was a little straightforward. I was super duper excited for Hero Realms. Because, well, one, I, I prefer a fantasy situation to Deep Space Star Battles or Cthulhu. So I was more interested in that. I was super interested because it, um, it has a big focus on cooperative play, which, to be fair, Star Realms has available cooperative play too. But I'd rather do cooperative fantasy than cooperative space opera. That's just our per- personal preference. Also, 
Hero Realms added unique starting decks. So you could be, you know, the wizard or the fighter or the thief, and you would have a different starting deck than everybody else. That's really awesome too. So there's a lot of really cool stuff in Hero Realms, but still, the base gameplay was closer to Star Realms than Cthulhu Realms. A little bit simple, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not fair to say play on rails. There are interesting decisions, just not enough. That's why I am so excited about Ruins of Thandar. Because it takes Hero Realms, which is a pleasant, light, little diversion of a deck builder, but gives it a big, epic, sweeping, story-driven campaign that plays over multiple sessions. And as you build up your deck that represents your hero, when you finish one session, you don't reset the deck. You keep your new deck and then keep on building and become stronger and stronger. I am so excited for that. Um, you know, that just seems like... I mean, why is it taking so long for us to get that? I mean, to be fair, Pathfinder, the adventure card game, had this, but Pathfinder is, is barely a deck builder. It's a very, it's a super duper slow drip deck builder, whereas, you know, Hero Realms, like Star Realms and Cthulhu Realms, is a full on, in your face, full speed, full throttle deck builder. So the notion of having that, but game after game after game, having your deck continue to build and evolve, I'm super duper stoked. That's why it's my number four, my most anticipated uh, expansion of 2017. Hero Realms, The Ruin of Thandar. All right, number three, almost to the end, we've got Role Player Monsters and Minions. Now, I did a, a run through for Role Player, gosh, not tw- I think in 2015. I think it was on Kickstarter in 2015. And Jen, I did a run through for the um, Kickstarter campaign. And I said at that time, yeah, this is a shoe in for top 10 uh, for us for 2016. And it breaks my heart. In 2016, I never got a copy of Roleplayer. I mean, I live in Europe. It was not an easy game to get over here. Um, you know, the publisher never sent me a copy, which a lot of people don't realize this. Probably two-thirds of all the Kickstarter run-throughs I do, I never get a final review copy. They don't pay me to do them. I don't get final copies of the game. They just send me the prototype. I do the run-through, and that's it. Often I send the prototype on to another... Um, the, the, you know, Anyway, the, neither here nor there. So... I was heartbroken that I never actually had a chance to get Roleplayer in 2016 because I think it would have made my top 10 of the year. But I've only played the prototype, so I can't really judge. And now what's interesting is, 2017, Roleplayer is getting an expansion! It was already potentially one of my top 10, and you know more stuff, that's only going to mean more better. Um, so, I'm really hoping to check this out. And maybe this means I'll actually get a chance to get a copy of Roleplayer in 2017. And retroactively, if, you know, if the final game is as good as the prototype we played, and I know they made some tweaks um, based on some of the based on some of the feedback I gave them when I did my run through a couple of years ago. So I really want to see those. Um, heck, maybe it will retroactively make it into my top ten of 2016. But anyway, uh, number three on the list: Roleplayer Monsters and Minions. Now, number two and number one. They might as well be tied um, because they are Time Stories, Expedition Endurance, and Time Stories, Lumen Fidei, or Fidei. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's two new expansions for Time Stories. Yay! You know, Time Stories drives me nuts. Easily some of the best gaming experiences Jen and I have had, period, have been in Time Stories. But every time they put out another expansion, we once again discover, right, they clearly still don't care about the two-player experience, in our experience, in, in, in our opinion. Uh, that clearly all the design emphasis is on trying to make the full four-player experience really at its best. And they say, oh well, and we'll try to make it okay for two-player or for three-player. And then for two-player, 
just play it like a four-player game. Really, that's what we suggest you do. And so, I mean, I've got mixed feelings about it. It just drives me nuts. This game is so good. And it's such an amazing two-player experience if you use the house rules that I have posted about at great length on BoardGameGeek. I, it just, I mean, so we'll continue to use them. And I guess I shouldn't complain. Because here's the thing, they work. We have enjoyed every expansion, but we can't enjoy it the way the designers have written the rules. The rules they've written are much less than ideal for two players. There are good rules to be had, and my only complaint is, I guess this is maybe a tiny bit of a spoiler, but every time you finish a um, an episode of Time Stories, the last card you get is a, hey, let's see, let's score to see how well you did. And Jen and I, we like to do that. We like to see what our final score is. But the problem is, for every one of these expansions, because the designers have never actually spent the time to really make the game work in its ideal state for two players, and therefore I'm having to use my own homebrewed um, house rules for two-player, I can never really be certain if the final scores we get in these expansions are in any way, shape, or form even remotely meaningful. And so, we, we do the scoring and we always say, well, oh, I have no idea if this is actually legitimate or not because we had to break the rules and play it our own way. So, I... Yeah. I love Time Stories. And I, I mean, I'm super... It, obviously, this is my number one and my number two most anticipated expansions. This one that is set... Uh, you know, Expedition Endurance is set at um, the beginning of the uh, 20th century in the early 1900s on an Arctic research base. That's cool. And Lumen Fide is set in uh, medieval Spain. Um, doing what? I don't know. Maybe it's some kind of Assassin's creed things? Who knows? Um, but I'm excited about both of these. These are, both sound like really cool and interesting... And fresh locations, which, you know, is kind of a nice change because a lot of, you know, actually all of the expansions, all of the stories for Time Stories so far have been kind of standard gamey tropes, um, board game tropes. So both of these seem really new and fresh and different. So I'm excited about that. I can't wait to see what new tricks they come up with to, to really tweak the experience. And I'm looking forward to once again being disappointed at the end both times because they just couldn't be bothered to come up with, ro- with two-player rules that are as robust and well-considered as what they do for three and four players. Anyway, though, that's it, folks. We are done with expansions. Phew! <coughs> More water, please. Oh. So, now... um. I don't know. I was thinking about this. I think I'm going to do it. I think it'll be fun. Next up, um, well, hold on a second. We are going to go back in time. We're going to set the Wayback Machine for one year right after this. Okay, welcome back. So, here's what we're going to do. Um, you know, my normal podcast structure... If there's any normality to it all, is games of upcoming games of interest, revisit a previous top ten, and then do QA. Let's revisit a previous top ten. Although, instead, let's revisit a previous top twenty-five. This time last year, I put out podcast or no, I know I didn't put out a podcast. I put out my top twenty-five most anticipated games for 2015. I figured let's get that list back out and see how well those twenty-five worked out now that 2016 is over. So uh, revisiting the top 25 of 2016. I got the list up here. Let's go. Number 25 on my list was Acute Care, a cooperative hospital management game, which I, at the time I was super duper excited about. And um, you know, shortly after I put this list up, just a couple weeks later, I was crushed to hear that the 
designer himself actually posted on the geek list saying that um, he'd had a falling out with the publisher on it, and he was in the process of looking for a new publisher. So the chances of it being published in 2016 were slim to none. And it turned out that was the case. It did not come out in 2016. And in fact, I haven't heard anything about it since. Game's kind of gone into limbo, which is too bad, because, man, um, you know, we ultimately did play Healthy Heart Hospital in 2016, and that was a very nice cooperative hospital game as well. But I want more. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's so much unplumbed depths. And Jen and I, we just love the notion of a game where we where our number one goal is the verb of what we do in the game is save people, rescue people, heal people. That's just awesome. So my fingers are crossed. Someday we'll get to see acute care somehow. But anyway, moving on to 24 was Shadow Rift, Eve of the Sickle Moon, and I finally did get. It took forever for my Kickstarter. I think Shadow Rift is the last Kickstarter I've ever backed. Because these days I just don't back Kickstarters anymore because I have too many games to play already. I just don't need more games on top of it. Uh, but my Shadow Rift finally showed up. It looks great. The art is phenomenal. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but um, you know I'm super excited. Just uh, I you know and, and, you know I, I what I, I need people to thumb it. Go to the request list, request.rado.com, and put your thumbs on the expansions for Shadow Rift so that that can push it up in my queue so that I can get it played so I can do a run through. Ah, but still, I'm just happy to have it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very very pleased. I haven't played it yet, but I've looked at it. It looks great. Number two uh, was uh, the Shadow Rift and its expansions that came out last year. Number twenty three was Feudum, and Feudum was a game that had been on my anticipation list for years. Because I was so excited about it because it promised to be this game that was all about interesting um, symbiosis and synergy between competing players. That, you know, player X produces goods that player Y needs so that player Y can do what he wants to do, which is something that directs player Z. And I've always loved the idea of this. I've always been looking for a game that does it. Feudum had promised to be that. And then, you know, it turned out 2016 was the year of Feudum. It finally hit Kickstarter, and the publisher contacted me and offered to send me a prototype so I could do a run-through. He was really, really excited because he knew I'd been waiting for years for this game. And so I got it before he sent out. What I always do whenever anybody contacts me about doing a run-through for their game, the first thing I say is, could you please send me the rules? And I read the rules, and I decide... But you know, before I ever see the game, whether Jen and I are going to like it, um, or I, I do my best to anticipate whether Jen and I are going to like it, because I don't want to waste either of our time playing games we aren't going to enjoy. And um, and then if we like it, I say, hey, the, the rules—they sound great. I definitely have a good idea of what it is. Go on ahead and send it out. Or sorry, I read the rules. This is—I'm pretty sure this isn't going to be for me and Jen. Please don't send it. And that's what happened with Feudum. I read the rules. I was so excited. There were so many cool ideas. The art is absolutely staggering in its, in its originality. Uh, it doesn't look like any other game out there. And um, there are so many cool ideas. But I was not prepared for how much player versus player there is in that game. And there is a lot. And so it broke my heart. I had to tell him, no, I know I've been waiting forever, and I know you really want me to do it. And a lot of people on the Kickstarter campaign, a lot of people on BoardGameGeek and YouTube contact me, everybody wanting me to do a run-through, and I had to say no, because I just know Jen and I won't like it. It's just It had too much player conflict woven in, so I said no, um, passed on the very gracious offer of you know the prototype of the final version. It's just not for us. Probably the biggest heartbreak of 23 for me, because I'd been waiting for that game for so long. And again... I'm, I have every confidence. It's a really, really sharp game. Just not for me and Jen. That, so, 23, Feudum didn't work out. 22, Dungeon Scroll. 
Man, I still want to try this so much. I'm pretty sure it did actually ship in 2016, but Game Salute never sent me a review copy. And it was funny, I was actually at Essen Spiel. I uh, ran into Michael from Game Salute, and we were chatting, and uh, he asked me, hey, are there any Game Salute games that you want to cover? And I ended up picking up a copy of Black Orchestra, which I've done a run-through for, and that was actually really neat. And at the time, I was sitting there saying... Oh, Michael, I know there's one I want. I just, I just can't think of it. And, um, you know, I finally get back home and I'm like, ah, Dungeon Scroll! So I missed my opportunity to get a review copy of it. Still, so I don't know. I don't know if it worked out well or not. I mean, folks who have gotten it, because I'm pretty sure it did come out. Did it live up to the hype? It's basically a dungeon crawl mixed with a, um, word spelling game. You know, like Scrabble or whatnot. I love that idea. I'd love to try it, but, eh, I just, it, you know, the stars were not aligned. And number 21, Perfect Storm Alaska. It was in my top 25 last year. It's in my top 25 this year. I, I continue to hope it will eventually come out. Number 20 was Brazil. So that's two years in a row that is in my top 25 must-haves. So obviously it hasn't come out yet. I haven't tried it. Uh, and then number 19, Islebound. Mmm. Islebound is so, so good. But, um, you know, this is another example where... You know, I did, I did the run for the prototype, but I never actually got a final copy. Um, which again, you know, like I said, more often than not, that's what happens. And so, I don't know. I, I didn't actually get a chance to play the final release. And it's interesting because I heard that Ryan actually made some addition to the rules based on suggestions I made in my final thoughts of my video because I thought the game was really good. Jen and I enjoyed it, but we thought the board was way too loose with two-player. So I made some suggestions, and my understanding is that those suggestions got implemented. So that's really awesome. But I haven't had a chance to try it, so I can't really say. But, I mean, the game is brilliant. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was. Um, so I'm, I'm still confident that number 19, Islebound, um, was a worthy one. And then number 18, Seventh Continent. So this is, again, uh, the second year in a row. It's made my top 25 most anticipated because um, it didn't show up last year. And then we have number 17, Time Stories, Prophecy of Dragons. Turns out that was awesome. Um, you know, in spite of my um, moaning that you just heard a few minutes ago about Time Stories two-player implementation, doesn't matter. Still love it. And uh, Prophecy of Dragons, I think, is the best Time Stories expansion to date. It was the most, it was the one that took, had the most fun with the fundamental conceits of the game. And I can't say anything without spoiling it, but um, I'm not saying it had the best puzzles or any of that, but the storytelling in it was just phenomenal. And it's the best art, because it's Vincent Dutre, or Vincent Dutrois. Oh man, I gotta look up how to spell his name again. I think it's Dutre. Vincent Dutre's art was amazing. The setting was a, a hoot. And there were just so many... The, the storyline in that game was just, just wonderful. I mean, Jen and I were smiling ear to ear the entire time. We absolutely loved it. Time Stories, Prophecy of Dragon, number 17. Number 16, Eminent Domain Exotica, Expansion for Eminent Domain. That one I did eventually play, checked out, did a run-through for. Really liked it a lot. But it was interesting. When I, I mentioned this in my run-through. It's almost like it's, I've got eminent domain overload now because Exotica added so much to the game. It was kind of overwhelming for me and Jen. Um, don't get me wrong. I still love it. I'm still going to keep it. You know, someday when I eventually stop doing Rotter Runs Through and I have more time to really dig deep into games, I know um, eminent domain, because of Exotica, has a deep well to dive into. And I look forward to revisiting it in the future. But yeah, that was an excellent expansion. Definitely. I called that one well. It was definitely warranted being on the most anticipated. 
Number 15, Manhattan Project Energy Empire. I did get a retail copy of that, and I'm so glad I did because I totally blew it here. I put it at number 15 on my anticipation list. Turns out it was my best game of the year. Um, oh, spoiler alert, if you haven't heard my um, top 10 of 2016. But yeah, Manhattan Project Energy Pro Empire, best game of 2016 for Jens and my money by far. And uh, yeah, there you go. So uh, that worked out pretty well. Number 14. Explorers of the North Sea. I eventually got a prototype for that, gave it a try for the uh, for a run through when it was on Kickstarter, and you know we liked it, but it was a little bit too light. I mean, you know, we were mostly excited because Raiders of the North Sea was so amazing, and Explorers of the North Sea was good. Uh, and it, I mean, if we had kids or if we had a lot of opportunities to do kind of gateway style gaming, I think it would be a keeper. But for just me and Jen, it was a little bit too light uh, and, you know, too focused on the pick up and deliver. So, I mean, it wasn't really, uh, you know, uh, it didn't really work out for us, but it's still a neat little game. Number 14, Explorers North Sea. Number 13, Dreamwell. This is a lovely little puzzly game. Jen and I both enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, you know, I did again. I did a run through for it when it was on Kickstarter. We got a hoot out of it. You know, I, I think this is reasonable. I mean, I, I think it warranted being on this list. I anticipated it. It lived up to my anticipation. We very much enjoyed the prototype when I when it was on Kickstarter. And number twelve, the networks. This was another slam dunk because this also made my top ten of the year because uh, I'd done the preview of the prototype the year before in 2015 and then in 2016 when it came out it turned out it was absolutely amazeballs one of the top one of the 10 best games of the year we absolutely loved it it's a game about you know running your own tv studio and you know, trying to get the most ratings phenomenal Great, great game. Number 12. Uh, number 11, Fog of Love. Hey, is this now the third game that I've had now in my uh, for two years in a row on the anticipation list? Didn't come out. So, um, although to be fair, I did actually play it. Uh, you know, I played the prototype. And so, yeah, it, it didn't live up. It just didn't, you know, the commercial version didn't come out. But we really enjoyed it. So much so that the commercial version has made my 2017 anticipation list. Because I talked about that earlier. So, yeah, I guess this is a winner. It was number 11. And we did find in the end it was so good that we cannot wait for the retail version. Which, again, I don't know if I'm going to get one. If they're going to send it to me or not. If they do, that'd be great. If not, no big deal. That's fine. I got plenty of other games to cover anyway. Then number 10. Rising 5, Runes of Astros. So I did get the uh, prototype for this when it was on Kickstarter. And yeah, this is basically Mastermind. I, I guess I didn't quite realize this at the time. Because um, uh, back then I said, The game uses a digital app as a dungeon master to drive players through a sci-fi deductive adventure. With art from Vincent Dutre. That's all I knew. <clears throat> and that was enough for me to make it my 10th most anticipated game for 2016. Um, the art was gorgeous. The cooperative gameplay was fun. The app was very nicely implemented. And what I didn't realize at the time is its mastermind turned into a cooperative science fiction adventure game. That was brilliant. Um, absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, you know, again, I don't... Uh, wait, wait. Actually, hold on a second. Wait a minute. Ooh. I don't think this game came out for 20... I don't think it made it out in 2016, did it? Which means, folks... I don't think it's on my 2017 um, anticipation list. It should be. That's because it's listed as a 2016 in Game and Board Game Geek. That is incorrect. I'm going to have to fix that because that is wrong. And um, hey, everybody, retroactively, 
Um, Rising 5, Runes of Astros goes on my list of most anticipated games for 2017. Um, thanks, 2016 list, which I totally forgot. Oopsie doops. Anyway, great game. Definitely worthwhile. Number 9, Solaris, Solarius Mission, which at the time I was very excited about because it was from the design team behind Lagranha. It was a space 4X game without the 4th X, so players weren't attacking each other. And I was so excited. I did get a chance to play it. I've done a run-through for it. And it's a really, really rock-solid game. Very cool, clever mechanisms. Um, kind of revisiting the resource wheel that Uwe Rosenberg pioneered in Ora Labora and Glass Road. Uh, but doing really cool new stuff with it by combining it with dice. Lots of neat ideas. But that was the game that, in the end, kind of broke my heart because it made me realize I don't like traveling through space. Because uh, everything about that game was good, but we still didn't enjoy it because we discovered we don't like space flight. It's just, it, you know, it was really weird. You know, I'm not going to talk about much here. You can go watch my final thoughts on it. It's, it's a really good game. And if you do like exploring space, it's great. But Jen and I discovered we don't like exploring space. So uh, it, was, it was interesting. I mean, you can see how excited I was. It was in my top, t- it was my number nine. But yeah, it just, uh, yeah. Anyway, number eight, role player. Hey, um, as you guys might imagine, I've already talked about that quite a bit. It turned out to be absolutely amazing. Um, and uh, yes, I'm excited about the expansion. I hope I ultimately get a copy of it. Number seven, Guilds of London. Yeah, this is one of the best games of 2016. Uh, and, you know, presented with it, I think it's kind of a shame it's not in my personal top ten of the year, because it is. It's easily one of the best, most solid, well-constructed, brilliantly considered designs of the year by far. It's just also way, 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 way too mean. It is an area control game with teeth, with knives, with um, oh, just nastiness galore, and it revels in it, and it was just too mean for me and Jen, which was heartbreaking. You can see how excited I was. It was my number seven. But when we ultimately played it, it was just way too mean for us. So it wasn't a keeper. But easily, still, I think, in terms of just objective analysis of design, one of the ten best games of the year, easily. Number seven, from my anticipation list, Guilds of London. Number six, Quadropolis. Quadropolis, I think, is my number 12. It just missed my, my ten best games of the year. It's absolutely phenomenal. We absolutely love it. I'm actually kind of bummed. That, you know, maybe everybody doesn't know this. People, um, <clears throat> apparently, Days of Wonder, you know, had some problems with the production. They didn't realize it. The cool little uh, transparent acrylic game pieces that it comes with, over time, they start to snap. They don't break, but they have cracks in them. And mine do. And I haven't heard yet if Days of Wonder have announced how they're going to do a replacement scheme. I really hope they do, because it is great. I mean, even though I've got cracked pieces now, I don't care. The gameplay is still great. Like I said, it was, I think it was my number 12, maybe my number 13 of the year. So I definitely think it warranted the amount of anticipation I had. But um, yeah, I'm still waiting to, for a solution to the cracked meeples. <laughs> number five, Lisboa. Uh, I was excited about it. We definitely enjoyed our time playing the prototype. I think I nailed it. I think that was a good call, being this enthusiastic. Um, because, hey, now it's in my top 25 anticipated for the commercial version in 2017. Let's see. And then number four, Legend of Andor, Chatta, and Thorn. Uh, this is another heartbreaker. This is a two-player-only cooperative card game that uses some of the ideas from... Um, 
Kashgar, Handler of the Karabakh, which is uh, one of the best engine building games in years. One of the best deck builders in years. Absolutely phenomenal. Love that game. It should get all the love in the world. Although you can only play it the German version right now because it's never been published in English. So you have to do paste-ups or all kinds of stuff. Anyway, um, the designer, um, Gerhard Hecht, took the ideas of that and repurposed it into the Legends of Andor universe. And I love that idea. I would love to play this game. That's why I was so excited. And I was hoping and praying that the gods of Cosmos would be kind and give us an English translated version of it in 2016. It turns out, because it had come out in German in 2015, it turns out they did not. Um, our prayers were not answered. We did not get Shadda and Thorn, Legends of Andor, in English in 2016. And because of that, I'm going to assume we'll probably never get it. So, uh, broke my heart, my number four. Um, but anyway, let's move on to number three. Legends of Andor Journey to the North. That did arrive. It is excellent. I'm a little bummed because it turns out for Jensen, my money, Journey to the North, even though it does so many cool new things, it's really just bursting with creativity and cleverness. We like it a little bit less than regular Andor because that some of the changes to the design put a bigger emphasis on combat. And combat was always our least favorite part of Andor. And now combat is a bigger part of Andor. So still, on the whole, it's great. But um, it wouldn't have made my top 10 for the year, definitely. And uh, I'm still glad to have it. Just a little, a little tinge of disappointment now that we got the final thing. But we still like it. Still plan on finishing the whole thing. And still plan on... Remember, because Legend of Andor, Last Hope is... Um, oh, actually, oh, you don't know that. That's a spoiler. It, the third and final chapter of the Andor series, Lost Hope, Last Hope, is in my top 25 most anticipated for 2017. And then number two, Star Trek Frontiers. Oh, I was so excited about this one. My heart was racing because it took the brilliant gameplay, or it was supposed to take the brilliant gameplay of Mage Knight, the board game, but apply a Star Trek theme to it and streamline it to make it a bit more approachable. So I finally got it, finally played it. I'm very pleased with the Star Trek theme application. As a Star Trek fan myself... My hat's off to them. I think they did, They made a lot of brilliant choices. It really captures the feel. It uses the characters in really um, appropriate ways. And now it's interesting. Not everybody agrees with that. But for my money, I think everybody's wrong. I mean, there's two things people complain about, mostly about the thematic integration of Star Trek Frontiers. One, that it's kind of weird that you're flying around this new sector of space, um, blowing up... Romulan ships, and yet you can go to star bases and recruit Romulans onto your Klingon vessel. Or you can recruit Borg onto your Starfleet vessel. And it's just weird. All these characters should not be on the same ship together. And particularly because you run around blowing them up. Okay. I talked about that in my run-through. Anybody who says that is not a true Trek fan. Or not a die-hard Trek fan. Because they need to pay attention to which Romulan characters you can recruit. Which Borg characters you can recruit. The choices were made, and uh, it was very smartly. And uh, the characters you can recruit are ones who would be willing to look o- overlook the fact that you open fire on a Romulan ship and would still join you to fight the greater good. Because that's what their characters have done on the show. And so... I think people are wrong when they say that. And then the other thing people are wrong about, a lot of people complain about, hey, Picard would never decimate a planet because it's possible. You can be flying the Starship Enterprise, captained by Picard, and if you want to on your turn, or actually decimate happens on somebody else's turn, you can choose to decimate a planet so you can get more resources. 
Yes, you can do that. And you know what? You're right. Picard would never do that. So here's what I suggest to you. If you're playing Star Trek um, Frontiers and you're Picard, don't do that. It's up to you. I think it's brilliant. I'm mentioning this now because I forgot to mention it in my run-through. And I've just been kicking myself because it drives me nuts. Everybody complains about this. And they fundamentally don't understand. Um, It's not like Picard doesn't recognize that sometimes using brute... Um, you know, aggressive force to achieve a goal that he needs to, to achieve a greater good, because everything you do in that game is for the greater good, to stop the Borg. And, you know, there are times, like, I don't know, say, Star Trek First Contact, where Picard is tested and pushed to the edge and to do questionable things. Uh, it's in his, um, you know, and, you know, and it's in his nature that he listens to his better angels and he does the right thing. So, um, but that's core to Trek. Trek is all about people facing their demons and rising above them and whatnot. So I think it's awesome, awesome that Star Trek Frontiers puts you in the captain's seat on the Enterprise and says, hey, you know what? You could decimate that planet, and that would really put you ahead. But you're Picard. Would Picard do it? Then maybe you shouldn't do it. I think that's a brilliant design thing, because then that puts you truly in the One Piece or the two-piece in later seasons, of Picard, and makes you walk a mile in his shoes, and makes you put you in the same tough decision that he has to make as a character. That's awesome. That's pure Trek. Anybody who says otherwise, they don't understand Trek. I'm, uh, I'm getting a little crazy, but you know, I love Trek. Um, anyway, so, long story short. Thematic integration, A+. Streamlining of Mage Knight the board game, F. Oh, it broke my heart. And I talked about this at great length in my run-through. I mean, when I gave suggestions for what I would have hoped they would have done, the kind of streamlining I would have expected, there is some streamlining, but very little. It's almost a um, you know, a point-for-point exact clone of the original, and I was disappointed by that. So ultimately, it's not a keeper, which, as you can tell from my passion for Trek, is heartbreaking for me. But that's okay. I've still got Star Trek Expedition, and it's lovely. So, I mean, that'll do. Uh, but anyway, so that was my number two, Star Trek Frontiers. Oh, man. And then number one, Gloomhaven, um, didn't come out. It's, uh, spoiler alert, it's in my top 25 most anticipated for 2017 as well. So I continue to wait. I continue to be very excited. Oh, I cannot wait. Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven, Gloomhaven. Uh, and that's it, folks. It's a quick walk back through memory lane of how did, you know, my, my hopes and dreams for 2016 compared to um, the cold, hard reality of 2016. And uh, I don't know if you find that interesting. Let me know. But otherwise, I'm going to end it right there. And now we will move on to some Q&A. Hold on. Okay, folks. Almost the end of the road for January podcast. But at long last, we come to the Q&A portion. I was really surprised there were very few questions sent in to questions at rotto.com this month. So this is probably going to go by pretty quickly. Jen is here on the couch with me. Hello. Hi, Honey Pie. She is surrounded by beagles. Yeah. And as always, we're going to do the game-related ones first. Jen, I don't know if she'll have much to say on these ones, but if she does, she'll chime in. Otherwise, what are you doing over there? Are you on Facebook? Are you on... Um doing some research for my trip to California. Ah, okay. California research trip research. Yeah, if anybody has anything to do around the San Francisco area that they think is really, really cool, 
Do write in and let us know. You know now everybody who listens to San Francisco said, well, you should come to our place. Come and play games with us. Aww. Come and join us this Saturday at our game group. We meet up at the best. You're going to get a ton of that now well, that you've said that. That would be awesome, except I'm with my mom. Okay. Yeah. They'll all say, bring your mom. We'll have plenty of games for her, too. That's what you're going to get. <laughs> okay, my mom's not really into game playing. We can convert her. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll make a new lifelong fan. Oh. Well, so you're saying any non-gaming-related suggestions? Yeah, that I can do with a lady who's about 75 and... Um, that would be would be interesting intellectually and culturally. In and around the San Francisco area? Yeah. You said? I mean, oh. kind of anywhere around that area because we've got a couple days after we leave Yosemite before we have to be back down to Santa Barbara. Okay. Well, um, sorry, folks. This is supposed to be about the game section, but we just delve <laughs> deep into the personal. We'll come back to that later. Oh. So let's get going with the game-related questions. Thank you for your patience. Starting with Paul, who oh. asks... Dee, dee, dee. Who asks, oh, it's about Lord of the Rings, or Reiner Knizia's Lord of the Rings. Apparently, he loves it. He is the biggest fan, played with all the expansion, just absolutely digs it on every single level, and he would like to know, have we ever uh, played the game with any of its expansions, and if so, what were our opinions? I'm afraid to say no. Um... Reiner Kinesia's Lord of the Rings was one of the first games we got when we got into board gaming. In fact, I talked about it in my... I think it was in my first 10 games. I think. I'm pretty sure it was. I Recently, within the last few weeks, I did a top 10 for our first 10 games we played. And I think I talked a bit about it there. You did a top 10 for the first games we played? Yeah. For the first, you know, after Pandemic. It was Pandemic plus the nine that came after that. Oh, okay. You were just listing the first 10 games. Well, I talked about them and what our experiences were and all of that. Okay. I just didn't uh, know you were doing a top 10 of the first 10. Because they were all top 10. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay, go on. Righty. And so anyway, Paul would like to know, and I, I did mention this, um, I was keen on it. I thought it was a neat game. And I ended up chasing out all the expansions, which was not easy at the time. Um, but as it turned out, Jen didn't like the game at all. And I, no matter how hard I tried, she just could not be... And she wanted to like it because she loves Lord of the Rings. But ultimately, I ended up trading the entire bundle away, expansions and all. Very, very sad. Sorry to break your heart there, Paul. Uh, and now let's move on to Dylan, who... Um, let's see here. Really enjoyed that I did that top 50 on BGG. Wants to know if I could extend to the top 200, maybe over a few episodes. You said ask anything, and then a little devil smiley... Yes, you're an evil person, Dylan, for asking that. My throat is trashed. Tell you what, don't send in a question like that. Send in a question next month for, hey, could you do 51 to 100? And that'll be a bit more reasonable. And then if you remember the following month to ask me for 101 to 150, we could probably pull something like that off. Um, anyway, and then Dylan also asks, I seem very disappointed when I couldn't get a hold of Kingdom Death Monster before. Now that it's available again, I, he hasn't noticed that I'm chasing after it. What's changed? Well, I learned more about the game, basically. i have been very excited about Kingdom Death Monster because of the promise of what it offered. And really, that was less for myself and more for Jen. Because I think she would absolutely... Actually, I've never talked to her about it. Honey Pie. Yes. Let me pitch you a game that we could get. Okay. All right, it's on Kickstarter right now. I believe it's only on Kickstarter for another five or six days. So the window is rapidly closing. Goodness. And once this Kickstarter is done, we will have no opportunity to get this game. Okay. The publisher, he, he did a Kickstarter years ago, launched it last year, 
And people thought they'd never be able to buy it again, but he's done, a, he's done another one. This is our last chance to get a game called Kingdom Death Monster. Here's the pitch. We wake up um, with no memory in just in dressing a loincloth in this weird, do also, dark... Do I get a top loincloth as well? No, you do not. Oh. Uh, the game's very sexy. Okay. Uh, um, it's a long loincloth, and you can kind of drape it over your breasts if you like. Okay. I think that's what the little miniatures look like. Um, you wake up. It's a dark, foreboding place. Uh, you know, you can't, there's no features anywhere. Um, you have a mysterious lantern. You, you sense there's something important and meaning, like, you know, it's, it's your very life essence. Okay. Uh, and you have no recollection. The ground is made up, uh, as far as the eye can see, of featureless faces. As you walk, you know, just sharp, jagged rocks. I mean, you're completely naked. You wake up like this. You look around. There's three other people. They seem to be in exactly the same situation as you. And then a blood-curdling roar. The scariest, nastiest-looking giant lion appears. Okay. Uh, and there's something creepy and otherworldly about it. It actually has human hands. It seems to have an unnatural intelligence. And it pounces! That's where the game starts. On me. And, and, we, um, and it's a cooperative game. Uh, players share control over these survivors who have no idea what's going on, where they are. The very first thing you have to do is um, basically survive against this lion with nothing. I think you uh, pick up some rocks and you try, and chances are two of the four people will die. Um, it's, it's a rough, brutal, brutal game. But after it's done, if you survive, or whoever does survive, you basically loot the corpse of the lion. You rip it apart, you find innards, guts, teeth, eyeballs, uh, patches of fur. You never really know. There's a car, you, you okay. stack of cards, you randomly get some resources. And that's where the adventure begins. Um, you find a settlement of other survivors and, you know, who were who thrown in. Everybody has a lantern. Nobody really knows what's going on, why we're here. And you start to try and build a society using the only resources you have, the guts and innards of that lion you killed and what other people have done. You start building tents. You start trying to make clothing. You fashion weapons. Um, but not only are you focusing on that, but you are also you know, coming together. Uh, you know, nobody actually speaks until, until you make the breakthrough of language or the breakthrough of compassion or the breakthrough of cannibalism. You start... Um, you know, it goes in a million different directions. You can start forming the society, oh. uh, new people. Uh, you know, and you know, and this is going to go on for generations in this strange, otherworldly place. Nobody understands why we're here, where we came from, what's going on. But str- crazy occurrences, terrible monsters, horrible authoritarian knights will come by and cause us trouble. And um, you know, and you know, we we will give birth. We will die. You can't get too attached to any one character because nobody is going to survive for long. Um, but if you do, I mean, while the person might die, their possessions linger on and more people join. And so you get more attachment to the things you've created because the people aren't going to live long. The game actually encourages you, though, to name these people specifically because that will give them a bonus. But it's, it's a blatant attempt to try to get you more emotionally attached to them <laughs> um, because you did name them so that they could get, I forget what, the, the little bonuses. But the structure the structure of the game is the you, you, you play in multiple sessions. You play over 50 sessions as this civilization builds and builds. Mm-hmm. And a given session is, what is it? Um, you decide at the beginning of the session what you're going to go hunting for. And over time, you, you know about the lions. You can go hunting for more lions after you've beaten one and you know how you can kill it. Uh, but then you start finding other things. And so you, you choose to go for a hunt. And so there's this... Pro, this uh, 
first step of every session is you go through a you go through this hunting phase where your group moves forward and has to face a bunch of events. Uh, you know they are almost all bad, but sometimes they're good. But almost they're all terrible things. Eventually, you get to the creature, um, whatever it is you found hunting. Uh, you know, maybe the creature was doing his own story. Maybe he turns around and he ends up hunting you, or he tries to escape from you. Eventually, you find him. The main portion of the game, half of a session, two-thirds of the session, is a tactical skirmish game where your characters are moving around, move three over, sh- shoot our bone darts. Oh, no, he's uh, attacking back, and oh, somebody died, but I've gotten, I've hit him from back. You know, so a big tactical skirmish game with tons of dice rolling. And then after that's over, you harvest whatever, you go back, and then you have this process where you continue with the evolution of your society. You make um, events happen, you know, um, I don't know, evil mad, dark magic storms or strange visitors or opportunities to make new technological breakthroughs and um, leveling up your characters. But all the while, it's a grim, dour, depressing place and um, there's the constant threat of death or serious injury. I mean, these are permanent injuries. It's kind of a... You, you, all the characters have paper. You write down what's happened to them because once it's happened, it, you know, it continues until they die. They start going crazy um, you know, just because of the omnipresent dread of this world. But they still try to eke out a meager existence and try to find happiness where they can. So, that's the notion. And there's like a big epic, one of several different storylines that will play out over those whatever it is, 20 sessions, provided everybody doesn't die. Because that's very possible. Your civilization, you might get five or six in and everybody died. We didn't do very well. Let's start over. Okay, but I'm not sure how do are you and I both playing two or three different characters? Well, we share control over the civilization, and then we get into the skirmish thing. Yeah, it's always four, I believe. So each of us would control two characters. Okay, or you'd have four people playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is really the target audience. But okay. hmm. so does that sound intriguing to you, Kingdom Death Monster? I think probably the whole hunting thing is not as much of interest, but I think the civilization building part is very interesting. That is, that is, yeah, that's exactly what I agree. Dylan, I was super intrigued by the civilization stuff, and I knew Jen would be too, because Jen loves shows like Alone and Naked and Afraid. This seems like Naked and Afraid, the board game set in a crazy fantasy universe. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was really excited about that, and I thought, well, you know what? Maybe we can just put up with the combat, because we don't particularly care about skirmish combat. It has to be something really, really special. And while there is some neat stuff about the combat, it's a, it's a bajillion. I mean, in a given session, we're going to roll dice to determine what happens probably a hundred times. Wow. Roll to attack, roll to defend, roll to dodge, roll to see what this event is, roll to see if we survive this event. Roll, 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 roll. And honestly, I, when I started seeing... Well, I actually started watching some playthroughs because there's so many people who love this game, so many really good, high-quality playthroughs, higher quality than I would ever do of a run-through, and I saw just how much of the game just comes down to roll to resolve over and over again. My heart was crushed. Hmm. Here's the other problem with the game. Honey, we could get this game right now, deliver that um, experience for the low, low price of three dollars to $500. Holy cow. Yes, because the miniatures, they're probably the most um, articulated, brilliant, gorgeous, scary, gross, grotesque, but also beautiful miniatures in board game history. I mean, it's like th- this game is crazy boutique miniature porn for all intents and purposes. It's mm. just absolutely crazy yeah, over the top. But the thing is, you get the game, you pay all those hundreds of bucks, plus we'd have to pay more to get it shipped here and have to deal with import taxes and all that. Yep. But it comes in a million pieces and you have to put them all together. You have to snap them out, shave off the little burrs, and then glue them all together. And, you know, just to make a single character is like an hour's worth of work. That's probably an over-exaggeration. But I've heard that to make some of the more elaborate creatures, to be able to build them so you can fight against them, um, 
it's a big, big ask. <laughs> you get a workshop going. Yeah, pretty much. So, but you ha- you do live with a very crafty person. Yeah, yeah, maybe you, maybe I mean, obviously, a lot of people enjoy that. Maybe you would enjoy that. So that's the question, honey. It's on Kickstarter for a few more days. Should we back it? Well, Dylan wants to know. I think it's lovely that there are people who are backing it and <laughs> that it seems to be successful. But I think for for me, that that seems like a huge amount of time to commit to one game. Mm-hmm. And while I'm happy to do that for Pandemic or something that I know I'm really going to enjoy, I, I think you know basically what you've said is sixty percent of the game at least is the attacking and stuff that we will just be putting up with yeah we're just trying to get through yeah. i mean it does some really clever stuff like so you, you fight a lion uh as part of setup i think there's like several different decks that can determine what the lion does and so the lion you, you end up combining these decks in different and unexpected ways and then you start fighting him and you realize oh my gosh this lion is radically different than the other one he has a completely different personality mm. because you made up this car- deck of cards and the thing is the more damage you do to him that forces the lion to discard his deck so um, the more you fight him and he's getting weaker and weaker he's kind of narrowing down to just I'm just going to keep doing this one thing over and over again because that's all I can do that's really clever there's a lot of really clever stuff, but it's all undone by just the mind-numbing amount of dice rolling that would be in that game. We would just hate it, I think, um, which is too bad. Uh, I wish Kingdom Death Monster had had a different, had had a more Eurocentric design aesthetic. It's a pure Ameritrash, true and through, and while it has some really amazing concepts that I'm so in love with, it's just not for us. And certainly not for that price and for the amount of work we would have to put in to make it even playable. If... If it were available for a hundred bucks and um, it was uh, you know regular minis or even just standees, I might consider it. But I'm not going to pay four hundred bucks, um, you know, after you have to pay import taxes and all that, and then have to spend God knows how many hours building it for a game that chances are at the end will respect but not enjoy. Fair enough. That's there you go, Dylan, and anybody else who is curious because I know a lot of people ask. That's why I went a bit deep into that one. But for people who are intrigued by what I just pitched. It's on Kickstarter for another few days. I think it's going to hit $9 million. Um, It's been very, very popular. And even if you don't like it, the reality is once this Kickstarter is over, you'll be able to flip all those things for twice as much as they're worth. It's an investment. Oh, yeah. So, anyway, not for us. Next up, Theo has a silly question. Um, the following people knock on my door and say, Hi, Rado, I hear you're the king of board gaming. Based on what you know about me, what game would you recommend for me? He's mentioned five people, Theo has. Peter Molyneux, Stefan Feld, James T. Kirk, Hermione Granger, and Rodney Smith. Oh, no. <laughs> That's... Wow. Oh. Okay. Let's see. Well, you know, of all of these, your first one, Peter Molyneux, that's going to be the toughest one because I actually know him, and I know him very well. So I can't just make some... Let's see. So for Peter... You know, let's come back to that. That sounds more like a... Per- that's not really... That's, that's silly. We'll come back to that in the personal Q&A section. We'll be back to that in a second, Theo. All right, that's a sneak peek of what's c- about to come, folks. But anyway, uh, Lance, uh, not Undead Viking Lance, but a different Lance, would like to know, or actually would like to say, thanks for coming on my show, Bags and Boards, on uh, KXTR 100.1 a couple of years ago. You're welcome, Lance. Uh, I almost exclusively play games with two-player, and I wanted to see if you'd be willing to talk about or post somewhere your variant for time stories. In fact, Lance, I have done that. I forget. It's, it's on Board Game Geek in one of the time stories threads. or I, I don't think it was in the original time stories form. It was in for one of the expansions. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this podcast, so you can find it. Uh, it's what we use now for everyone, and I think it works great. And I think it should be official, but it's not. And then, let's see. Oh, Lance also has a personal question, so we'll come back to that later. 
Melanie asks, how did we get introduced to Eurogames? When did we realize Ameritrash games were not for us? Uh, how did we get introduced to Stefan Feld games? What was the turning point to devote so much time to making board game reviews on YouTube? And when did we start attending board game conventions? And what was your first convention? Wow. Okay, Melanie. One well, time. let's see. The first couple questions have actually recently been answered because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in the month of December, I did a run-through for our first 10 games. And uh, we were introduced to Euro games during that time. And actually, you know what? I don't think we were necessarily introduced to Ameritrash games. What I'm going to be doing, I'm not going to do it in this podcast. I'm going to do it in the next podcast. I'm doing a follow-up to that first 10, and I'll talk about the next 30. And so uh, most of your questions will be answered to that, our introduction to Euro games, our introduction to Stefan Feld and whatnot. So that'll be coming in the next podcast. When I do, you know, the next chapter two in our evolution as board gamers. But let's see, you also asked, at what point did I make the switch to devoting so much time to making board game reviews on YouTube? Well, I, it was during my second attempt at retirement from my chosen career of video game designer. First time I retired, which didn't last very long, just a few months, I figured, what the heck, let's give it a try. And that's when I started. And and you can see those first videos that I was doing with the iPhone that looked terrible. Oh my gosh, they're embarrassing. Uh, But then I went back to work, got another job, came to Malta. And then a year later, that job was over. And um, living in Malta, it was much safer for us to retire. And that's when I started getting into it much more heavy and hardcore. And, um, and, you know, heck, I talk about that, I think, in my very first Kickstarter campaign. That's also when I did my first Kickstarter campaign, because being retired meant I could not afford to buy games anymore. So I needed folks' help to be able to continue the show. Let's see. When did we start attending board game conventions, and what was the first one? Our first board game convention was Essen. Spiel. What year was that? Mm. Well, we were still in England. Yes, we were. I was still at, uh, it was... 2011, maybe? Probably. Two, I'm gonna, I, yeah, I would say. Because, yeah, we started playing board games in 2010, late I 2010. I can look back on the calendar. So it must have been the following year. So 2011, Essen Spiel. And um, that's when we started. That was our first one. And you know what? I don't really consider ourselves to be board game convention attendees. I mean, nowadays, we, only, we go to Spiel not for fun. We go for work. I go for Rattle Runs Through. Jen goes for Gamer Glass. Uh you know, if, if, if it wasn't for Rado Runs Through and Gamer Glass, I don't think we would go to Essence We've done it a few times now. We don't need to do it anymore. We're not chasing off after... I mean, because we play games here. And our most fun way to play games is just sitting at our on our comfy chairs at our wonderful table with our incredible view, enjoying each other's company. Uh, you know, we conventions are fun, but I, I honestly, I, I don't really see this super hard drive appeal that so many people have to play. I mean, maybe it's because we have access to tons of new games all the time. Maybe for a lot of people, convention is all about being able to get to play games they wouldn't normally be able to play. I totally get that. But, you know, with my job at Rattle Runs Through, we can replicate that at home. Maybe it's because people want to play with a bunch of strangers. That's nice. I mean, I, I, I certainly enjoy it, but I'd rather play with Jen. So, yeah, we're not really hardcore into conventions. Jen would have something to say. I just looked up, and we did our driving holiday, which included Essen, uh, in 2010. It was... N- yes, n- I've just looked at the calendar. But that's the French holiday. No, no, that was the one where we went to Prague. Did we start... Put, well, when was, the, when was the driving holiday in France then? Well, I'll keep looking. Okay. <laughs> I had to go back six years for this. Oh, man. That's some heavy research. Uh, and while you're doing that, yeah. Jason asks... Although I don't know if you had anything that you want to say about conventions. 
Because that would certainly be something you might have some. Um, I think that there, I, I can just remember our first one that we went to, and we were just completely blown away, mm-hmm. not only by the the variety of things that were available. I mean, there's there's so many other things other even than board games, like our, our kind of board games, that are available at these kinds of conventions. So actually, it's really interesting if you've got kids, I think, to go to something like this, because there are all sorts of other things that you can that you could incorporate into your family life that would be fun for others. Um, let's see. I think it's always fun to travel and just be in a place that's different. So I, I would recommend it for that. Sure. You know, um, and actually, we did drive one year to sp- to Spiel, and that was our first convention. Yeah. Was it? Did, yes. Okay. And uh, that was fun because we went to Prague actually. Yeah. First. So, yeah, I mean, just kind of having an adventure, the whole thing. Was okay. great. I'm sorry. That was a bit rambly. Okay. I need that people tune in for the ramble. If they <laughs> don't, they're in the wrong place. <laughs> All righty. So Jason wants to know about the legacy mechanism in race and games, although he does say mechanic, but we'll let it go. I'm just going to change that to mechanism. Um, let's see. Revolutionary in the board game landscape. Seafall, pandemic, risk, gloomhaven. have shown a wide range in quality. Well, of course, a couple of those haven't come out yet, but they'll be coming out very soon. Very excited. Charterstone from Stonemire is supposed to be a legacy game and appears to be very interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it really is going to be. I mean, I know it's being touted, but I thought I read somewhere the other day when Jamie was asked, don't worry, you don't have to rip cards up. I'm like, okay then, it's not a legacy game. I mean, if you don't have to make permanent, unalterable changes, it's not legacy. It's a campaign. But we'll see. Anyway, I'm still excited about it anyway. So... Uh, Jason wants to know, what are our thoughts on legacy games? Games that change the gameplay itself with each subsequent play. See, that's not it. Games that change themselves with each subsequent play is a campaign that you play through. Legacy is very different because it is permanent, unalterable changes. Stickers, writing on the board, and most importantly, destroying components. If you don't have that, I don't think it's a legacy game. At least, that's my own personal description. Do you see that mechanism as a deeper way to engage in a game, or is it a gimmick, soon to be forgotten? What makes a good iteration of the legacy mechanism? You keep saying mechanic. Um, I need to get over myself. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, well, actually, I will. Coincidentally, I just kind of said, I mean, what makes a legacy mechanism powerful and impactful is I'm in the middle of a given session. We're playing the game. And normally, if you play a regular game, you just make decisions with the sole intent of winning this particular game. And that's it. What makes Legacy special is you have to think about something bigger and greater. Because you can make decisions um, that might cause you to lose this current game, but in order to win the long-term game, the metagame. But... If you start thinking that way, it becomes very difficult, very challenging, very engaging, because these decisions cannot be undone. The results, the consequences of your actions are inalterable. And that gives every decision you make so much more weight, so much more heft, so much more meaning. And that's what makes it so truly compelling and compulsive in a way that no regular board games can't provide, in a way that video games can't provide. Because with a video game, you'll just go back and reload your save. Or you'll just start over from the beginning and everything will be back the way it was. That's what's fundamentally different about a legacy game. Once you rip up that card... It's not coming back. And if it's a game that doesn't have you make permanent changes like that, it's not legacy, 
And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. It's campaign. But it doesn't have that emotional heft and weight. And that's what makes it amazing. That's why I think it's here to stay. Although, it's a very scary thing. There's a lot of players who hate it. And, but I think, on the, on the whole, there are more people who appreciate the, the depth and meaning that is brought by permanent consequence. And so, yeah, I think it's here to stay. And I absolutely love it. I, I, I think it's a game changer. And it gives board games something that... You can't get in any other form of pop culture entertainment. Movies, TV, video games, regular board games. I mean, I guess maybe you get it in sports because the choices, the choices you can make if you get into a professional or you know, amateur or hobbyist sports can have permanent consequences if you blow your knee out or something like that. But yeah, uh, I love it. Do you have anything you would like to add about um, legacy gaming, honey? Do you have any thoughts? Okay, then last uh, last caller is Juan, who would like to know who is my second favorite designer after Stefan Feld, and why do I love Feld designs? I answer both of those questions, Juan, in my top ten game designers, which is a run through I did, I don't know, a year ago. Just do a search on Google for Rado top ten designers, you'll find it. And he also one would like to point out that uh, Tuluva Deluxe Edition was on Kickstarter a couple of years ago. Uh, it's bigger than the original. We'd love to see a run-through of it. Hey, yeah, we've got our original copy right here. We didn't get the new one because it was crazy expensive, and we had the original, so we couldn't justify it. I'll get a run-through for it eventually. It's very, very close. Uh, you know, The thing is, I'm always surprised. People don't seem to realize. You can pretty much get me to run through any game you want. Go to un or go to request.rado.com and um, find the game for or not any game you want any game that I would want to play that Jen and I would enjoy. You can make sure that's going to get run through in the next month easily. Find the game that's on that request list, thumb it, and then just go on Board Game Geek, go on Reddit, go on Twitter, start a campaign to get other people to thumb it. If you can get like two hundred people. And that's not that hard in the day in, in the in our modern day of social media. Just to go on and give that game a thumb, it'll rock it to the top, and it will be the thing I record next month. Because I always record every month the game that has the most thumbs. Anybody can do this. Every once in a while, somebody does it, and a thing rockets up to the top, and it gets covered. I'm surprised more people don't, because that's why I I put the system there. I I designed it so it could be gamed, so people could take control if they want to with a little bit of elbow grease. And I'm always surprised; very few people do. But that's it, folks. Um, oh, right, no, Jen did follow up. Yes, um, it was in 2009. Yeah, that's right. Pandemic came out in 2008. 2009, we made the French trip and were and introduced to pandemic, and then 2010 was when we went to Essen. Mystery solved. And now, if you want to hang out, I mean, that was not very many cues. Hopefully you enjoyed the A's. Come on back, and we'll do even fewer personal-related ones, including that crazy question. Might have to think about that for a sec. Hold on, everybody. Okay, everybody. Almost done. Finish line is in sight. The light at the end of the tunnel is upon us. We just have a small handful of questions, starting with Paul. We already answered his question about Lord of the Rings from Kinesia. Now some personal questions. Honey Pie. Yes. Assuming this podcast drops after Christmas or in the new year, which is the case, it is actually January 1st at the moment that we have sat down uh, to film this or record this. I'd like to know, what was on your Christmas wish list from each other, <laughs> and uh, what did you actually receive from Santa? Would you like to... Oh. I think this is your question, actually. Is it my question? It was, uh, it was your decision. 
Okay, yeah, we decided a long time ago. Uh, actually, I read a book called The Five Languages of Love. Oh, really? Okay, this, long, I, I don't know this. You do too. A long, long, long time ago, probably after we'd been married five or six or seven years, something like that. Okay. And the five languages of love are, um, one is physical, you know, love. One is verbal love. One is... Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, acts of service. Acts of service. Yeah. yeah. One is, um, oh, gift giving, of course. And then the, the next one is quality time. So p- the idea is that people express and accept love in different ways. I mean, so some somebody might really be... Um, only able to realize that you love them if you give them a nice present or only if you say I love you or only if you have delicious physical relations. Well, there are people have predilections towards what they want to receive and also what they're capable of giving. Exactly. Right. So um, once I'd read this book, I realized actually I am not a gift lover. (laughs) I've never really felt that that was the way people, that I best experienced people loving me. And so I talked to my husband about it, and he couldn't care less about gifts either. <laughs> and so we had, you know, we'd done all the traditional stuff every year for birthdays and Valentines and Christmas and stuff, and, you know, of trying to figure out something to give each other, because this is kind of how we're brought up in, our, in American society. It's and a fair amount of pressure. It is a fair amount of pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, especially after the first couple of years, you're kind of out of good ideas. So... <laughs> Um, anyway, once I'd read this book, I realized that I didn't care about gifts and he didn't care about gifts. So why were we torturing ourselves like this every year? Um, so we just decided not to do it anymore. And instead, um, we discovered, you know, actually I'm an acts of service person. So that is how I both express and receive love, you know, most truly. And, um, so if you come over to my house and I've made you dinner, that's an act of service. And that is me expressing, um, that I care for you. Um, and if, when I need help, I ask my husband to help me with whatever the project is, and he drops whatever he's doing and comes and helps me, and that is his act of service to me. And that is how I know that he loves me. So, um, you know, if, if if I wasn't that way, I don't know. Maybe I'd have lots of jewels or something. Uh, but for us, that is what works. Yeah, you're so, right. I guess I did know about this, but in my memory, I'd completely forgotten the whole touchy-feely book part. and Because mostly I just remember you saying, you're hard to shop for. Can we just stop doing this now? Because actually, you were easy to shop for. I know. I was able to get you gifts. You know, all I had to do was just go to some antique store and say, "Hi, do you have anything made to bird's eye maple?" Yeah. And they'll always have something. And okay, I will buy that because Jen <laughs> likes bird's eye maple. Well, actually, one year you went into a jewelry store and bought me a raw tanzanite, an unset tanzanite. Did I? Yes, you did. I don't remember this at all. That was amazing that you'd gone into a jewelry store. Wow. And that you knew which gem, gem to ask for that I love so mm. much. So um, yeah, he's done. He's done some good gift buying. Um, but it was, and I guess those gifts were made even more important in that I knew that he'd been paying attention to me and knew what I actually wanted, mm-hmm. um, and was willing to go to the effort to, to actually go. So that's sort of acts of service. But anyway, um, so long story short, our Xmas wish list was very short in that it was zero empty yeah. and we didn't get anything. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, we're, we're adults. People don't send us presents anymore. Although actually, to be honest, with the Rado runs through, it's almost like Christmas every day here because we, we often get packages in the mail of games that have arrived, and games are lovely and wonderful things. So That's true. Um, there you go. All righty. Um, Paul would also like to know, how did or will we celebrate the new year? Oh, well, unfortunately, I had a heck of a headache yesterday, so I went to bed at 8 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. And slept until 7 this morning, so... 
uh, it wasn't very exciting for us. Yeah. I, would, I would say the answer is by recording this podcast and answering <laughs> your question, Paul, it is now 11 a.m. on January 1st, 2017, and here's how we're celebrating. We're celebrating the new year with you. With you people, yes. Yeah. All righty. And um, what are our New Year's resolutions? Oh, dear. You got one, honey? It's always the same. Try to lose some weight and get fitter. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. A bit boring. All righty. Um, and I don't really have any. The last real New Year's resolution I had was a couple of years ago where I resolved not to get into Internet fights anymore trying to defend people who can't defend themselves because it was just driving me nuts. And... I, I do it a lot less now, although I just got out of a really long, nasty one. And uh, it just reminded me, yeah, stop doing that. Because you'll never convince anyone of anything. All you can do is just argue to a stalemate until the thread gets shut down. And nothing good comes of it. And my presence just makes things worse. Because if I didn't show up, the flames would burn themselves out that much faster. So that's my ongoing resolution. Stop defending people online which sounds terrible but i just have to do it all righty let's see that would be it for gaming and personal questions from paul now let us move on to lance again uh who let's see he wanted to know about the time story saying like i said lance check the show notes uh, there'll be a link in there for it but also lance wants to know honey pie hmm? what's radio and local tv like in malta no clue <laughs> Actually, we when we lived on Malta, we did have the radio on sometimes mm-hmm. in the car, and I I would listen to it in the studio. But yeah, with Pandora, I could yeah. listen to music I enjoy. Yeah, pretty much. We just I, I just pay for a, a what you call it a DNS rerouter. Uh, it costs us five bucks a month so that we can trick Pandora into thinking that we're in the U.S. So that we can use Pandora, which we've been using since we lived in the U.S., and that's pretty much all of our music. Uh, Pandora is our absolute favorite music streaming service. Um, we have, we've listened to sometimes in the car, and I don't know, it's just standard kind of Europop-style stuff. There's nothing wrong with it. The uh, Most of the time it's in Maltese, yeah, the, so it's just very high-energy talking in Maltese and then some Europop songs and uh, very loud commercials. Yeah, they do turn up the commercials at least 30%. Yep, but I guess that's true across the board. And for local TV, we do actually have uh, local TV, but we never turn it on because, again, everything's either in Maltese or Italian. Mm -hmm. There's very little English broadcasting. And we only have it because we effectively have it for free at the package level that we get our internet service from. I mean, we do, everything is, you know, online streaming. we, We do as much as we can to... Be as if we're still living in America, basically, in terms of what we watch. Um, let's see. Have we watched anything on Maltese TV? I would. It, I've tried several times to find local news in English because every night all I can find is local news in Maltese. And I keep asking people saying, no, yeah, it's, it's in English. And I go and try the time and channel and nope, nope, it's Maltese. You're wrong. You're wrong. I eventually gave up. And now I just do an RSS feed off Times of Malta, the you know the the biggest newspaper in the country, and that's how I get our local news. But yeah, otherwise, uh, it we're 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 all Netflix all the time and and various and sundry services. So yeah, uh, what's it like? Um, what is it like? What do I know about the Maltese TV? It's it's in Maltese, so I can't say. Sorry, I want to give you some. Um, you know, I mean, you, I know you can do a search there. A, a friend of mine, um, 
David Chirkop mm-hmm. was the star of the first Maltese soap opera. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it, it's still running to this day. You know, it's filmed on video. It looks like a regular soap opera. You can do a search. I mean, just do a search for Maltese soap opera on YouTube. You'll find clips of it. But it's, it's a lot of talk shows in Maltese mm. and a lot of documentaries in Maltese and a lot of soap operas in Maltese. So we just don't know. Because we have we we're we've never spent a second trying to learn anything of Maltese here because everybody speaks fluent English. Yeah. And um, and Maltese is a spectacularly difficult, crazy language to learn. Apparently. Yeah. Even they say it's pretty bad. Yep. Yeah, because it's such a weird mishmash of of Arabic and a million other influences from the thousands of years that this island has been, you know, conquered. Alrighty, so, and again, Melanie wanted to know, would we consider filming some videos out and about in Malta? Because Melanie thinks our U.S. subscribers would like to see what Malta is like. Melanie, you're in luck! Last year we filmed, it must have been 10 or so. Mm-hmm. Last year, uh, throughout the entire month of December, I, every day I filmed a video of opening up the, the door for that day's Calendar. Advent calendar. Advent calendar. Yeah, the Brett Spiel Advent calendar. We filmed 24 videos, opening up a door for it every day. And we started out just doing it in the apartment, but then we did one in the backyard. And then we did one on the roof. Mm-hmm. And people started responding to that. So then we did one, I don't know, on the beach. And the next thing you know, we, hey, we're over on Malta. Let's do a bunch of these over in Malta. So we ended up filming quite a bit of stuff in and around Malta. The second half of last year's Advent Calendar series. And again, just do a Google search for Arado Advent Calendar and you'll find Arado Advent Calendar playlist. And I think you'll just find a playlist for all of them. Mm. And again, probably starting on the 6th or the 7th or the 8th day is when we started getting out and about. So you can enjoy that. And that's it except for that crazy, crazy question from Theo. Uh, and actually, I, I meant to actually go and think about this, and then I didn't. I just, we just well, got up, got a drink of water, sat back down, and started recording again. So I totally forgot to prepare. Right. Uh, we'll just take it one at a time. Well, honey, you know Peter. Do you have any recommendations for a game for Peter Molyneux? I mean, you've gone to dinner with him. Actually, that's about you from that one time we went to dinner with him, right? Yeah, I don't know. You don't know. really know him I that well. Know. All right, so Peter. It would have to be a game... That gives you a lot of freedom uh, and to build things because you know that's what Peter is. You know, I mean, it, it's no surprise that his biggest, most influential game of all time is Populous, as that is that is what he's all about. That is who he is as a person. You know, he he's a kid in a candy store. He wants to take his toys and make things out of them. So. It's, it's kind of the opposite of me. You know, every time I've ever complained about the game being too sandboxy, that's a potential game for Peter Molyneux because he wants a big open sandbox. Uh, and of course, he loves civilization games. He has a you know. What? I'm going to go with Eminent Domain. Eminent Domain without any expansions because the base game of Eminent Domain just says, "Hey, uh, start building your deck." There's a really nice interaction between you and other players. I mean, that's a big part of what he is as well. He's a very social gamer, but Hey, I forget what it is. Here's 30 different tech cards, and they're all available to you right from the get-go. Mix them up however you want. I think that would be a really good fit for him. Uh, Eminent domain for Peter Molyneux. Stefan Feld. Well, let's see. Um, I'm going to assume he likes to play the types of games he wants to make, so that's going to have to be a game that feels very Feldian. (laughs) And actually, just to stick it to him, I'd probably want to do one that's crazy, crazy, super monster-heavy, just to... 
make him make his brain burn like he has made our brains burn. So maybe Madeira or Brussels 1893 or Lagranha. Those would all be good options. I'm sorry he's played them all. Uh, James T. Kirk. Let's see. Do you have anything to say to that? I mean, are you going to answer any of these? No. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Well, the obvious thing would be, you know, Eclipse or Zy or some big space Why opera. Not some Star Trek. But no. Game. I say no. Oh. Because that's the obvious choice and that's the wrong choice. Because if you're a true Star Trek fan, everybody knows that James Tiberius Kirk is a world class 3D chess player. He's so good he can beat Spock. So. If that, I mean, and he, you don't just fall into that. That's obviously a passion for him that's only been briefly touched on in the show. So, knowing that about him, what kind of modern design? See, my first thing that pops in my head would be Hive. Um, you know, kind of a neat little abstract, just brain burner, infinite replayability. It doesn't have any 3D aspects, but on the flip side, I mean, he's on the go so much, it'd be good to have Hive because he can play it anywhere, on any planet, in any <laughs> atmospheric disturbance. Um, just as long as the uh, Heisenberg compensators stay online, he shouldn't have any problems at all. And the inertial dampeners. So Hive would be a good one. Maybe Santorini, because then that's got a little bit of the 3D as well. Or probably just Go, really. Um, you know, he's a master tactician. Uh, so anyway, that would be my answer for Kirk. Hermione Granger. Okay, you have to answer this one, honey. <laughs> she shook her head no silently <laughs> and went back to her San Francisco research, I guess. Um, let's see. Hermione Granger. You'd want something that, like, kind of like Peter, you'd want something. Has to be very logic based. Yeah, it has to be. Oh, easy. Alchemists. Oh, she'd love that. Yeah, of course. That's a no-brainer. There you go. That's an easy-peasy one. That's, a, that's turning a game into what she loves to do anyway. That's a, a, the only problem is she'd probably be too good at it. Oh, she'd... But maybe the expansion, will, uh, you know, which we haven't played yet, will take it up a notch for her. But yeah, Alchemist. Easy-peasy. That was made for Hermione Granger. And last up, Rodney Smith. You don't even know who that is. He's another uh, board game video guy. So the obvious answer for Rodney is, I mean, you know, just pick any popular Ameritrash game because the man is an Ameritrash fiend. He loves, you know, or the, the kind of the hybrid ones, you know, like your, I'm, I'm sure he'd love Inish, um, you know, or I know he loves Kemet, you know, all those kind of things. But I'm not going to go that way. You know, I'm sure he's got every one of those games. He is such a cheery, charming, upbeat, happy fella. I think I would want to give him a game that really kind of plays to his innate Canadianness. <laughs> um, because that's what he's all about, eh? So, what would that be? A really happy, upbeat, just pursuit of happiness. I would get Rodney Smith. I would recommend Rodney Smith check out Pursuit of Happiness just because of the type of person he is. Not because of the type of games he tends to enjoy, where he spends a lot of time attacking and killing, but instead, the type of person he is, which is just incredibly sweet, charming, giving, wonderful, lovely man. How about Last Will? <laughs> Why? Because it's charming and giving, and you could charm and give yes, away I suppose that's an interesting one. Yeah, you, give, you spend the entire game giving everything you've got away. All right, there we go. So um, hopefully you enjoyed those answers, Theo. And that's it, folks. Um, episode twenty is in the can. Happy New Year! I've I've totally forgotten now if I said that right up front. So let's end with Happy New Year. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Prospero año and felicidad. And thanks for listening. Questions, comments, concerns, as always, please let me know. That was a really short list of Q's and A's. Remember, you can always send more to questions at rado.com, and we'll try to cover them next month. Otherwise, 
Have a very, very nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.